Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order and talk about them most of the time except for this episode, because this is not a normal episode. This is our one-year anniversary Q&A episode. I want to welcome you, dear listener, to The Question uh, we had a call go out with the last episode, and over the past few weeks, uh, many listeners like yourselves have written their questions onto little paper boats and let them run down the gutters into the sewers underneath their towns across the world, and we have gathered them all up and read the questions, and now we're going to answer them. I'm Michael, and with me is Cameron. Hello. <laughs> no bit this time. No, that's it. That's uh, especially this is the no bit. This is the no cell zone. You know, see if you're here, if you're listening, if this is your first episode of this podcast, what are you doing? Is my question. That's my question to mm -hmm. you. This is actually what we're doing. Is we're going to ask you the questions. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's our first question and answer episode. We're just gonna we're gonna do. Uh, <laughs> we're going to do an hour and a half of asking questions in between each one. I'd like you to pause the podcast, mm -hmm. uh, dear, dear listener, uh, pause the podcast, write that out and then continue on. Uh, mm -hmm. it's going to be uninterrupted on our end. And then at the end, just email us all your answers. I was going to say, you have a blue book, uh, write all your answers in the blue <laughs> book at the end of the episode. We'll give you a mailing address and you can send that in. Um, no, but for real, uh, uh, this is, you know, all the questions that we got uh, up to a couple days ago uh, as of this recording, uh, but the question sewer will remain open uh, for the future. We may, you know, in, in the future, do another kind of like big just Q&A episode. We may uh, bring this on as a segment for regular episodes when we have enough time. Uh, and if you have questions uh, from this point forward, you can send them to thequestionsewer at gmail.com. And that's how you will uh, that that's how you, you know, send your little boat along and then uh, get your words in front of our eyes. Um, any other business you want to cover, Cameron? Uh, no, th this can also be uh, sometimes we get really interesting information on Twitter uh, or mm. on Discord or whatever. And, and feel free to come join the Discord. There's, of course, the information down in the um, in the description of this episode. If you want to join the uh, Range Touch Discord and come chat with us, you know, that it has its own little chat chat room and everything. I don't know what they call those things. You know, whatever. It's own little room <laughs> that you can talk about just just King thing stuff. That's all, if that's all you care about. Um, but, but occasionally we have people who like, uh, want to like share a correction or some interesting facts or whatever about something. Feel free to send those also into the question sewer. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, if we don't want to acknowledge them, we will ignore them. And if we do want to acknowledge them, we'll share them on the next episode. Cause there's always <laughs> all kinds of fun things that we forget all, constantly. I will say that something that is nearly constant with the show is that you and I will record an episode or we'll record, we'll record an episode and a bonus episode. And then we'll say, damn it, we forgot to talk about X, Y, Z. And so, you know, this could maybe introduce a little little zone for us to do that, too. For example, I've got one to share with you. And this is a very special thing for everyone who has listened to uh, the Gunslinger episode, which the Gunslinger episode is out now, right? It, it, it should have be, been yes. out already. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, It should be. It's frightening. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, I forgot in that episode... Uh, totally forgot about it entirely, that when I was in high school, I did, and I, I don't remember, what, maybe I was a sophomore in high school, something like that, 
Um, there was, you know, there's a thing called literary competitions. Have you ever been involved in a literary competi- competition, Michael? Not to my knowledge, but it doesn't sound like it sounds like something I might have been involved in, but it was called something different. So lay this out for me. Yeah, they're kind of coasty, I would say. I, th- I know that like in California, it's a huge thing. I know the East Coast is a big thing, like literary competitions. I, but I don't have a good sense of like the Midwest, like where, where mm-hmm. it's at in that. But the so it's like you might have heard of these or you might even participate in them. It's like um, uh, extemp, so like extemporaneous speaking, impromptu speaking. And you, you like get a topic and you get a timeline and then you or, you know, you get like a time and you go in front of a little panel and you like do the thing. And then you're ranked or whatever. So it's it's kind of like uh, it was done in concert with debate when I was in high school. So that's how I was involved in all of this. Oh, okay. I did not do this, uh, but the, the version of this that I did was uh, collaborative and team-based. So whenever that's uh, uh, relevant, I'll, I'll tell stories about that. So you can continue with your literary competition. That is the most uh, Midwestern thing, though, right? Where it's like, <laughs> it's like for us, it's like, all right, stand up and you are by yourself. Go ahead and go do the thing. And for you, for you, it was like, all right, get a team of people together. You can all do it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, OK, here's the scene. It's it, it, for, for me, it was like improv theater, right? It's like, here's the yes. scene. You, you it's, it's whose lines it anyway, games. You are people on the Titanic. Here are your personalities. You've got eight minutes to perform this. And I think that that was folded. I wasn't involved in any of that, but that was certainly folded into this activity. There were things like that that would happen all in the mm-hmm. same day. So there was like a, there was like a big competitive weekend, right? And kind of tournament style. And I was like absolutely piss poor at it, like truly terrible, like absolutely unbelievably terrible at it uh, because I did dramatic interpretation. Um, and mm-hmm. everyone here knows how good of an actor I am. Like everyone's mm-hmm. figured that out here on the show. I've really had the opportunity to uh, to do that. And so basically what it what it was uh, as an activity is dramatic interpret is you you pick a um, either from a play or from a novel or whatever and you kind of adapt it a little bit and you turn it into basically a monologue. And then oh, you I love where this is going. Yes. Uh, I, I bet you can figure this out. So, for example, the person who won the year that I did this uh, dramatic interpretation, the person who won um, that the, the tournament that I went to, because uh, I only did it once a year when, when our school got together to do it regionally, um, the person who won did The Stranger, Albert Camus, famous, you know, mm-hmm. Thing and he's doing the monologue and it, it, he's kind of compressing a lot of different kind of first person parts of the novel into one mo- long like jailhouse monologue kind of thing, right? And there's a lot of like miming and there's a he. I remember he wore a um uh what do you call it like a velvet jacket, you know, mm-hmm. because that was like cool and he was like a, like a 16 year old actor from rural Georgia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was like the coolest thing you could come up with. Okay, so and he was very talented. I remember it being a very striking performance. Um, but what I did, Michael, is I mm-hmm. thought, you know, what would be cool. Yeah. If I did, if I did the gunslinger, mm-hmm. wouldn't that be cool if I like turned that into a monologue? Now, Michael, what part of the gunslinger is a monologue? Well, you could argue that everything that happens in Tull is a monologue that we don't actually hear as a monologue because it just becomes the authorial voice. True. Um, but, <laughs> but if you were teaching monologues to students, what would be a monologue? Uh, 
None of it. Maybe some none. of the parts where Jake gets to talk for like a paragraph. I don't know. Yeah, none of it. Absolutely none of it. Uh, basically, I like edited together a, a dramatic narrative piece out of The Gunslinger that I'm sure mm-hmm. if I had any copy of, I, I don't have a copy of it, but I'm sure it would be like the most embarrassing thing anyone's ever seen. Right. You mm-hmm. know what? Maybe I do have a copy of it. I will go and look for it, not for this episode, but maybe for like next year's episode, <laughs> um, uh, you know, the one year anniversary episode. I might actually have a copy of it. Um, uh, <laughs> anyway, okay, so I go and do it, and it's just as bad as you think it might be. You know, it like starts with, uh, you know, the man in black fought across the desert, the gunslinger followed, which at 16, I was like, this is a banger. Like, this is where it's at. And this is like right when the next novels are about to come out, so I'm like really charged up on that. Oh, boy. And uh, it's just terrible, right? It's bad, and I don't do very well. But here's here's the the, the slight interesting uh, ending to the story, um, to keep this just from petering out. So I go and do my performance, and about 10 minutes later, you know, I go and sit down. I go into the cafeteria of this, like, regional school, and I go sit down, and the teacher who I am, uh, who, who's, like, taking us to the literary thing over the weekend um, who has chain smoked? Uh, my my mother had her as a teacher in high school, mm-hmm. um, small rural town. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. Has chain smoked? Ha, yeah, exactly. Has chain smoked the entire time. This this woman has been chain smoking since she was like eighteen years old, or perhaps even earlier, until I had her in her I don't know sixties or seventies, sixties probably. Um, mm-hmm. And so she's like a real kind of like hard as nails, serious person who like teaches drama and English in a small rural school. It's, it's an odd experience. And uh, so she's like, you know, a pretty serious person. She comes up to me and she says, how many curse words did you use? And I said, I don't know. I think I think probably only one or two. And she says, I, we're going to get disqualified. If you, because you use too many curse words in your monologue. <laughs> and I said, oh, I don't think I used more than two. And she's like, are you sure? Do you have the script? And I was like, yeah, I have the script. And like in the script that, you know, that you bring, because you have to like prove that you're not just, I guess, improving the whole thing. I don't really know. <laughs> I don't know why that's necessary. But like you have to have the script with you. And so I was like, oh, yeah, there's just there's one F bomb in here. You know, there's there's one F word. And she was like, OK, I think we won't get disqualified. Cue back to me or think back to me performing this. And I am not good at memorizing things. And so I definitely, while saying the gunslinger as a narrative dramatic performance and peppering it with like fuck and shit and goddamn and like all of these filler curse words (laughs) in order to do it. But they don't they don't film it or anything. Right. So it's just like the memory of the judges, I guess, versus what I have in the script. And she says, "Okay, give me the script. I'm going to go back and we'll see what happens. You know, I think you'll be okay." I give it to her, and like an hour goes by, and they release all the standings for all the activities at one time. And if you're doing, if you do well, then you like, I think, went to another round. It's like top three, and whoever won that went to state, and then you like, you know, did that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, people in in my activity group, you know, Extemp, um, uh, I think, got first place, ready to go to state, and that guy went on to, I think, actually, both of our top two because they are, of course. You know, uh, this type of activity, you know, not, of course, in a general sense, but of course, from where I'm growing up, gender segregated. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so like our number one uh, for extemporaneous speaker, uh, they go on, I think, both to win and go to state. Those people end up going to law school. 
Mm. Um, we had people who were doing, cause there's like vocal performance and they get their standings and they're like in the top three. So they get to go into the next round. There's all these like great things. Um, I get my standings back and I am dead last, but not <laughs> disqualified. <laughs> so that's my, that, you know, if you're thinking about, Hey, should I do a dramatic interpretation of a Stephen King work in a broad sense and then perform it as a 16 year old in front of a lot of drama teachers and just cursing like a sailor through the whole thing to cover up your lack of ability to remember any of your lines? Uh, the answer is no. I think the previous year I had done Catcher in the Rye with uh, similar um, bad results. The man in black fled across the desert and I followed. It's my favorite Robert Frost poem. <laughs> uh, the man in black uh, fled across the desert, but I just thought it was a goddamn phony. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I should have done. Anyway, so I'm starting to eat up the first 15 minutes of this with a long anecdote, but I really feel like I should have included that in that last episode and I forgot to, and so... Um, you know, that's a little treat for everyone listening to the question sewer episode. Yes. Uh, yeah. So let's, um, I'm, I'm glad we did get that, uh, shared with, with the public. Uh, let's just, I guess, crack into some of these questions. Um, I've, you know, we got, uh, uh, over two dozen, uh, and I have gone through and kind of organized them by, by general theme. And uh, unless you have other ideas, Cameron, uh, I guess we can start with how I've listed them here, which is sort of uh, beginning with kind of questions about content and approach, uh, both content of the novels uh, and then our approach to the that content and also to, to Stephen King generally. Um, mm -hmm. So we got a couple of versions of this question, uh, and I'm just going to read, I guess, uh, a couple of them off here here at the beginning because they're they're all kind of asking similar things uh with slightly different emphases so uh eric t writes in and asks how has doing this podcast for a year changed your relationship with steve's more current work uh listening to the show got me to read some of the later novels when i dropped off back in the late 90s uh, then Chris writes in and says, now that you've covered the first eight years of King's work, do you find your opinion or perception of him as an author has changed? Has anything stood out to you that might have caused a change in opinion? Um, and I think these two are, are similar enough that we can kind of answer them together. So I'll, I read, I'll, I'll leave it to you to, to take the first crack, Cameron. Yeah, well, I was kind of looking, I pulled up a list while you were, you know, while you were talking about that first one in particular, I, pulling up the bibliography to figure out what is the last, what actually is the last Stephen King novel I read or the most recent one that I read. And probably, uh, well, so I, I read Revival, which is from 2014, and then I read Dr. Sleep, which is 2013. Uh, and mm -hmm. I read The Wind Through the Keyhole, which is 2012. Oh, oh, actually, I've read. Okay, so it looks like I'm, I'm basically complete on Stephen King or 90% on Stephen King up until 2012. And then after 2012, I drop off and I've only read two since then. So I would say I don't really, I don't think it's changed my perspective on any of his most recent work. I would actually say that of the most recent stuff I've read being like Under the Dome and 11-22-63 and even The Wind Through the Keyhole, even though I didn't like it all that much. Um, and Dr. Sleep. I think those are all really good novels. I, I think those are actually novels that are on par with some of the stuff that we've read so far. And, and I think we've been pretty laudatory about what we have um, checked out so far. So I would say that what, what's, I guess, maybe a little bit shocking to me is that 
Um, you know, the way someone has asked me this question already, it was actually Jerry Canavan, um, of grad school Vonnegut and big fan of the show. And, you know, shout out to Jerry for being such a big supporter of just King things and the range touch project in general. But, um, we were having this conversation or maybe it was happening on someone's Facebook page a while back about like, what is the periodization of Stephen King and, and the kind of big vibe that came out of a lot of people talking about it. There was like, there's the kind of golden era of the beginning of Stephen King. And then there's the kind of, um, I don't know, uh, not as golden era of the 1990s. Um, mm-hmm. And then a his like weird turn to like genre stuff or crime genre stuff in particular recently. Because uh, a huge number of his most recent books have been just like straight up crime novels, which is, mm-hmm. well, I mean, we'll talk about that when we get there. Um, and, and I would say that I actually think that there's kind of a, there's maybe a different kind of wave function to that. Um, I think that the novels of the, you know, the 20 teens that he was doing or the early 2000s, I guess, that he was doing are some of his best work. I mean, I think they really, they really do it. And maybe this so far, what we've done so far is really get, actually giving me that appreciation. Like, I actually do think that Under the Dome is one of his better books. And I really do think that 112263, I think it's top 10, um, no question in my mind. Um mm-hmm. I mean, when, when we revisit it in five years, maybe I'll have a different opinion. But um, currently in my head right now, what, what I guess I'm surprised by is that some of the more recent stuff that I've read can at least stand up and be respectable in the face of what we consider a golden age king. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I think that 112263 and Under the Dome are both better than The Stand. I just think that. <laughs> and I don't know if that's right or not. You know, like, and I don't know if that'll hold up. But right now in my head... Um, I'm, I'm pretty surprised by that, actually, since the stand, you know, for so long in my mind was this kind of apex work that on this most recent reread just didn't hold up as well as I thought that it might have. Hmm. Uh, so I am in a I'm in a pretty different position from you in that I know for a fact the last King book I read was Duma Key, which is 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is right after uh, his right after sort of the dark tower finishes and he kind of quote unquote goes into retirement and then he turns back around and he starts writing again. And, uh, you know, I have my moment at age, I don't know, uh, 19 weird, uh, where I think, well, it's time to go back to the old me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to reread. I'm going to start reading Stephen King again. Uh, and actually like, I just, I don't like, I, I read Mm Duma. Like I remember reading Duma key enjoying it i did not dislike duma key i liked it pretty well uh but i also sort of thought to myself like i i guess you know and this this speaks i guess to uh the difference of being of being 19 versus i don't know where i am now and sort of what i'm doing for this podcast but i at 19 at that age i i remember sort of thinking like i've maybe picked up all i'm going to pick up from stephen king for the moment like Mm -hmm. i need to because i i had been reading this man for a decade at that point, essentially, uh, and had read everything up until that point. And I was really starting to kind of explore my options, uh, in college in terms of like, you know, world literature and, uh, various historical periods and all of these things that, uh, are, are not Stephen King and that give you kind of a framework for interfacing with literature as, as a general thing. Uh, and I just remember sort of thinking like, I, I think I've read enough Stephen King. Like what I, what I'm interested in here is, finding out more about literature and eventually going into grad school. Um, 
but I just I don't need to to keep up with this in the way that I did uh, because, you know, by the end, I, it felt sort of grudging. And the man, you know, I liked Duma Key. The man can still write a book that I like, uh, but I, I don't feel hard pressed to really pursue any of this stuff. So even when Dr. Sleep comes out, which is the the only thing that really kind of got me interested and got me close to reading more Stephen King again later uh, because I'm such a big fan of The Shining. I didn't even do that because I also thought to myself, like, I don't think The Shining needs a sequel. Like, I just don't care about, uh, like, whatever the second half of this story is. Uh, like, what I like is The Shining, so I'm just going to let it be. Um, I will say that doing this show has made me interested in these later works um if only because it brings back uh my reason for doing it uh which is to say i have some i I can i have a venue for sort of formulating an opinion on it or talking about it uh i would maybe not be reading dr sleep uh just on my own still uh if that makes sense yeah yeah no it absolutely makes sense and and even me i mean i had a similar experience to you in in a general sense I, I read Duma Key. I can't tell you anything about what it's about. I, I read it in the parking lot when I was waiting to pick up my now wife from work, like after college. Like mm-hmm. during the day she would go to work and then, or, you know, like whatever. But we had a we had a schedule, right? And so I would go and pick her up from work sometimes. And I would like have to sit in the car depending on when she got done, um, you know, and it would be like 30 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever. And I would, I like read Duma Key that way. That way, I have no idea what happens in Duma Key. It like really is the kind of book that is just like washed away from me. But the rest of those, I mean, I was in a similar spot to you of like not really being interested in reading Stephen King anymore. Partially the reason that I read Under the Dome and 112263 is that Under the Dome, maybe you remember this, where it was part of the um, algorithmic price wars for books. In 2009. Yeah. Yeah, So, so it would be like Amazon. It was like this, this like total collapse of algorithms, right? So like Amazon would post the book, you know, and it's $35 or whatever. Walmart algorithmically would also like post the book, but it would be five cents cheaper. And the algorithms kept going back and forth and bouncing to the point where Under the Dome, like the pre-order for Under the Dome, so you could get it the day of, of release was like $8. And this all happened in like 48 hours. And I just happened to see it because of like some forum conversations that I was following. And so I was like, well, this is like a thousand page Stephen King book. It can't be that bad. And and as a college student, I was like, it, it certainly can't be, you know, mad about paying $8 for it bad. And so <laughs> yeah. I bought that on a whim and I was like, oh shit, this is like Stephen King doing his thing again. Like Dick Cheney is a villain in that novel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's wild. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so then I read eleven twenty two sixty three and a very similar thing. It didn't get that cheap, but um, it got pretty cheap again. And I did that. And then I read that Dark Tower book after that. And I was like, nope, I think I'm off of Stephen King again. Um, and I didn't read Dr. Sleep until way later. I read it like when I was doing comps for grad school, just as like something to do that didn't require me to think too hard. Mm-hmm. And I like reread The Shining and then read Dr. Sleep. Um, same thing with revival. It was like, I was comping and I wanted to read something that was not a comic book, like before I went to bed. And so I read the Stephen King novel that goes nowhere. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't have a, as negative a picture of more recent Stephen King as I thought I would when we began this podcast, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. And I would say like, I, the, the thing that I, that has struck me is what you mentioned, which is that in the past, maybe 
five to ten years, King's kind of pivoted to thriller crime, just straight thriller crime fiction uh, that I'm sort of interested in seeing. Like, that's not really my genre, but it's interesting to see King himself kind of settle in on a slightly different generic inflection than basically everything he's he's popularly associated with um because you know looking through his short story collections i can see those threads i can see where that interest comes from and it is interesting uh, i think at least abstractly to imagine this author over the decades of his career finally getting to the point where he's like i'm just going to write about some like people chasing each other with guns yep i <laughs> I, wild to me, but we, mm-hmm. yeah, we will we will talk about it when we get there. But yeah, hopefully that answers those questions. Um, if it doesn't, uh, our apologies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, the next couple of questions, uh, again, very uh, kind of similar in in overall gestures. Uh, B writes in and says. A recurring theme so far in the show seems to be that returning to King's novels with increased lived experience often leaves one finding the novels troubling. My favorite King novel is one I can't recommend to anyone due to one horrifying scene and surrounding intensely problematic themes, but when I was a teen and first read it, the broader story arcs really resonated and so it has stuck with me through to adulthood. How do you two separate the enjoyment you do get from Steve's work with the often fraught approach he has to sensitive topics? Thanks again. B. Um, similarly, uh, Yanaman writes in, uh, thanks so much for this wonderful podcast. I read a lot of Stephen King as a teen, but stopped after Rose Matter, which was just too weird for teen me. I'm looking forward to reading more past that as the podcast gets into that territory. Here's my question. The thing that has stuck uh, with me most from King's writing is the combination of sordid human horrors alongside the supernatural. Things like alcoholism, domestic abuse, sexual assault, bullying, the effects of poverty, and other everyday cruelties. I always felt that strengthened the supernatural aspects of his work and made the whole much more terrifying. But on listening to the podcast and rereading the books as an adult, a lot of that same stuff feels exploitative and gross in 2021, and I know you've called that out too on the show. Are there instances where King, or another author, does this well in a not-gross way, or is that technique basically doomed to be problematic no matter what? Well, I I know you have not quite a pocket answer to this, Michael, but but you and I talked about this a little bit beforehand. Um, Mm -hmm. Do do you want to take a first swing, or do you want me to do it? Uh, I need to take a drink of water so you can take the first swing. Gotcha. You can take the first swig, and I'll take the first swing. How about that? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, so, so kind of that first one from B. Uh, you know, the kind of question here is: How do you choose separate the enjoyment you get from Steve wor- Steve's works with the often fraught approach he has to sim- sensitive subjects? I'm having a hard time reading today. Sensitive subjects. Um, I, I don't. I don't think I do. Um, I don't separate my enjoyment from those uh, sensitive subjects. Um, you know, something that you say, I think, in the beginning of every episode, right, is that, you know, this is uh, these are horror novels and they deal in things that are uh, difficult, difficult topics across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is a long history of horror in, in particular, but this is in a lot of different genres. Um, there's a long history of having to deal with the thorny issue of uh, things that are unpleasant and that that still provide enjoyment to us, 
right? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think a lot, and I was actually tweeting about this the other day in a completely unrelated topic, right? This is the kind of core concern or the core issue in Linda Williams's work, you know, very famous media theorist mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. wrote a very famous essay on the body genres, um, which are like romance and pornography and um, and horror and, uh, um, you know, particularly like slashery kind of stuff in horror. And uh, what Linda Williams says is like, look, that part of the disgust or unhappiness that we get from a thing is part of how the thing works, right? It's part of the um, the interest in it or part of the reason that we're engaging with it in the first place. Um, and that can sometimes be really helpful for people. I, I really like that Linda Williams, one of her examples, and this is the thing I was tweeting about, one of her examples is that um, she has a seven-year-old, at the time she had a seven-year-old son, uh, you know, it was in the 80s. She had a seven-year-old son, and uh, for him, the most verboten, disgusting, awful thing to look at on, on the cinema screen was people kissing. He just hated it. <laughs> like, hated looking at it, hated talking about it. And she says that. She says, well, isn't it fascinating, right, that the thing that that is so uh, displeasing to, to my son is just people kissing, a thing that we don't think of, you know, we think of as generally joyous, right? Um, mm-hmm. that, that there's this kind of disgust and displeasure that can, that can center on it and that can generate all these feelings about it, right? Um, and that these feelings can kind of be ambivalent. So I'm saying all of this to say that, that I, I, I think that it is uh, going down a, maybe the wrong path of analysis in some ways to say that um, my enjoyment does not have anything to do with the fraught approach as, as it, or you know, the sensitive subjects. Um, because I think that ultimately part of what these novels are doing is that they are looking for, so for example, in The Shining, it is looking at a situation of domestic abuse in order to kind of fill out a world of violence and yet possible grace, right? You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the um, interesting thing about that book and something we talked about extensively in the episode is that there's a moment where this man in the depths of you know, supernatural possession, alcoholism, truly domestic violence, all of these things that he can destroy himself, right, in multiple different ways in order to save a life, right? There's this kind of moment of of, uh, of positive supernatural um, transcendence that happens there. And so, you know, that novel leverages some of the worst things that humans can do to one another in order to say something about what humans do to each other. And, and more importantly, I think, what humans could do for one another. Um, you know, these kind of positive parts of, of the human or the human spirit or, or human capability. Um, so that, that's all to say, like, I, I don't think... For me, reading literature is not a, and, and engaging with media is not a like looking for. It, it, for me, engaging with media and reading literature is not this kind of um, search for the perfect thing that is not uh, problematic or doesn't have kind of difficulty to it. Um, it's looking for works that I think that that engage with the, the realness of humanity, but deal with that in a way that seems uh, true to that that kind mm-hmm. of human spirit to them. Right. Um, yeah. I think that when Steve is doing a good job at this, at doing this kind of thing, it feels like real human situations. I think that's a power of Stephen King's work when it's, when it's not working, it's the go for the gross out that we talked about from dance macabre. Right. Um, it's mm-hmm. just someone being horrible to someone else for no 
thematic or conceptual or plot related reason it's just this kind of what we've talked about in the bachman books this cruelty for no reason um Mm -hmm. that just kind of makes you cringe that doesn't seem productive to me you know do i think it's right or wrong i don't know but for me my kind of evaluation there is is it productive in doing something to the kind of aesthetic texture of this world um because ultimately at the end of the day like these are not these are not real right like the 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 liter the thing you read on the page or the thing you watch on the screen is not happening to a human being it is a, a fictional construction and you have to kind of pull it apart in that way um, and think about the what what does it produce for you and is that is what you had to go through to get that production is it worth it for you to have engaged with it I think oftentimes that's not always the case with Stephen King but sorry Michael it sounded like you had uh, something you wanted to say. Oh, no, no, no. I was just uh, nodding along here, uh, invisible to you and everyone. Mm. Uh, But, you know. Haunted house story. Yes. (laughs) Uh, The phantom agreer. But uh, (laughs) now now I'm like sidetracked thinking about what I could do with something like the title, the phantom agreer. But... (laughs) Uh, yeah, I mean, very similar to you, uh, I don't really separate these things, and the separation of them is not a thing that feels necessary to me, and you alluded to the fact that I have kind of a pocket answer for this, uh, and the pocket answer is, I studied Shakespeare for seven years, uh, and that doesn't mean that, like, oh, I studied Shakespeare and I have extremely erudite literature opinions, uh, what I mean is, like, Uh, open up any given Shakespeare play, uh, flip to a random page and count the lines before you get to the first instance of like some casual, uh, you know, derogatory comment about like the hair of an Ethiopian or something like that. Um, so Shakespeare, this, uh, you know, hugely important author we're, we're led to believe, but, you know, really, truly important in kind of a, a, a material sense in, in terms of um, how Anglophone culture has, has produced and reproduced itself. And in fact, there's a paper brewing in me somewhere on Shakespeare and Stephen King and the ways that uh, uh, author and brand identities uh, become uh, like intertwined in this way. But anyway, um, my point is that like, I spent, you know, years in grad school reading not just uh, Shakespeare, but people of his time period who had similar kind of prejudices and like literally, right, the uh, talking like racialized language where you say someone, a woman is not beautiful by comparing her to an Ethiopian, like that is commonplace in uh, this time period. And that doesn't mean it's right. That doesn't mean it's just like, well, that's just how people were back then. It's what it means to read this stuff and to know that this is what history is. Uh, and, you know, for me, uh, you know, studying Shakespeare and uh, kind of his cohort of dramatists and in all this stuff, it becomes about, uh, uh, from my experience, is like, okay, like, you know, trusting myself to, to be kind of a uh, aware enough to say that here are the things that are bullshit here. Here are the things that are bad. I don't like them. I wish they weren't here, but they are. And also here are the things that I think are cool, right? Here are the moments of poetry that I think still really resonate. Um, Here are ways that we can approach this uh, where we can, uh, you know, find ways of reading back against ingrained uh, uh, racialist or uh, gender essentialist attitudes or, or what have you. Um, it is just, uh, 
the other way to look at this is that like there is never a thing that I watch, read, listen to, or experience in any kind of you know uh, pop culture media capacity, aesthetic capacity that I do not, in some sense, critique. Like that is just sort of who I am. It's how I have kind of like positioned myself in the world. Uh, and it makes me the sort of person who very often people will say, don't you ever turn it off? Uh, but I don't, because that is what enjoyment is for me, is being able to pick apart uh, the things that I am experiencing in this way and figure out, well, what do I like? Why do I like that? What do I dislike? And why do I dislike that? And how do I sort of take those insights and feed them back into you know my day-to-day -day practices and how I treat other people and the type of work that I do creatively and critically and so on and so forth. Um, and so then, you know, in, in uh, more of the direction of Yoneman's question, uh, I think where this difference uh, or where this difference between kind of like using the, the real world horror and trauma to accentuate or actually using really the supernatural kind of to accentuate the, the real world horror uh, versus when those instances become exploitative. Uh, I think The Shining is a great example of this in that I don't think The Shining feels ex particularly exploitative in the way that it approaches alcoholism. I think that that is actually pretty good and grounded, and I think it still works. Uh, you know, the like Jack's kind of relapse and kind of his his drunkenness uh, are, I still think, a very good thematic parallel to the ways that the hotel enraptures him and slowly seduces him, and uh, the kinds of fantasies that it spins, and and what that book is trying to say about. Uh, the broader structures of violence, not just kind of in the family unit, but kind of in American history. Um, and then the other sort of follow-up point then is that where does that book not exactly work? And it's how it treats racism uh, through the character of Dick Halloran, uh, which as you said, Cameron, um, when that, when that book, like, so the book wants to say, right, racism is bad. Like, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that. I, I, I think that that is, you know, like where Steve is coming from. It's where the book is coming from. But mm -hmm. when Steve tries to think about, okay, how do I represent this? How do I work it into the novel? Uh, it's literally like a paragraph of the Overlook yelling racial slurs at Halloran, um, yeah. which is just, sure, it lets me know the hotel is racist, but it's not a particularly compelling representation of that real world horror, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, and I, you know, for me, all of this, my kind of line of demarcation, and it's something that that I've been able to really kind of feel out reading all these books over the course of the last year, is that for the most part, I'm willing to go along until something becomes a cartoon, becomes you know a two D version of something, right? And I think that's the overlook yelling at Dick Halloran, right? I think that that is a easy and quick and not very thoughtful way of trying to communicate an idea that really just reveals that, you know, kind of the limits of King's imagination when it comes to uh, thinking about the implications of racism in the world. Um, you know, I think here about the, um, I'm forgetting his name, even though I, uh, obviously I performed the voice, but the, uh, the dump attendant, oh, Doug. uh, yeah, <laughs> of course you remember <laughs> Dud, Dud in uh, in Salem's Lot, right? Who has this really weird and gross, salacious kind of imagination about um, the fantasy, quite literally, uh, about like a high school girl, mm -hmm. right? You remember that? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and that to me is just like this cartoon character, right? He's like, he's like the gross guy who lives on the edge of town who, you know, he's disabled in some kind of way. And he like you know, uh, slobbers over, uh, you know, teenage girls. Right. And mm-hmm. this is just like, this is Steve King going for the gross out as it were. And that's just this 2d kind of characterization that, that on one hand, I don't think does too much. I don't think it like makes that novel any better. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't have any, it doesn't set tone, right? It doesn't do anything for me other than saying, Hey, it's this character and he has these kind of aspects to him. And so that really, to me is, you know, when Yonaman in this question says, uh, things that feel exploitative and gross, you know, I, I have to, my next maneuver after that, right. Is that, is the exploitation as it is happening or is the grossness as it is happening, adding unique or what I think feel to me to be important texture to this world. Mm-hmm. And I think when Steve, when Steve's not doing a very good job, I think the answer is often no. So for example, in desperation, that's oh. a novel where I think of, and in uh, the other one, the regulators, the mm-hmm. kind of paired novel, I think those are just exploitative and gross novels in which the, the grossness does very little to make those novels uh, good or to add to the texture of them in any kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes he's better about that than, than in other places. Um, and, and I really want to hone in here, too, at the, the end of this question. You know, the final question that's being asked here, uh, are there instances where King or another author does this well in a not gross way, or is that technique basically doomed to be problematic no matter what? Um, and I think that the answer to that that I have and the answer to this set of questions that's here is that these things are obviously, you know, problematic in, in, uh, uh, the, in the general use of that word. There are very few things in the world of aesthetic production that are not problematic in some form or function. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that when you get to that point, you cannot stop there. It, or it doesn't seem useful to me to stop there. I think we have to then ask further questions about what is the role of difficulty or what is the role of discomfort or what is the role of absolute, um, uh, you know, horrifying things that you see on the screen or read on the page, what can they then produce? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking here, and this is kind of a little bit of a, a, a left field example, but this has been the question around Barry Jenkins's adaptation of the Underground Railroad recently, mm. um, is that, you know, Jenkins has been very forthright in saying, listen, that first episode of the Underground Railroad is a place where I am ha- I, I am doing some of the work of aestheticizing the violence of slavery, which which is has been critiqued for as long as visual representations of slavery have existed, right? Mm-hmm. It, uh, why would you do this in order to reproduce this horror for people, particularly mm-hmm. people who were enslaved and their ancestors were enslaved? Why would you do this? And, and Barry Jenkins has said a few different times, I've seen him phrase it a few different ways, that it, it is going through that. It's going through the violence of it aesthetically on the show that allows the grace of the rest of the, you know, whatever, six episodes, seven episodes, that allows for that to exist. Like, it, it becomes clear how to do it. And generally, I don't think everyone feels this way, but I think generally that has been very well received by critics, um, and not just white critics, right, who always tend to uh, be accepting of... Uh, visual representations of slavery, uh, slavery as kind of important, you know, quote unquote. Um, I've seen a lot of different critics respond to it positively because it seems that Jenkins has earned the the he has uh, earned that aesthetic maneuver because it does provide pathways for the rest of the show to ruminate on it and think back on it and do some reparative work around it. Not obviously not fixing the historical. Uh, reality of slavery, but thinking through the kind of uh, realities of it 
mm-hmm. in other ways and with character development and having people um, not pretend as if it didn't happen, right? Having characters recognize that it happened and we know as viewers that it happened and yet these characters have a life beyond that and it is that life beyond that that matters. So, you know, I don't think I don't think it is a... Um, I, I just think... Uh, sorry. <laughs> I think Barry Jenkins is a good person right now in this very moment to look at for kind of answering a different version of this question. Um, obviously, Stephen King is not good at that thing. Um, but I do think that he has you know similar relationships to addiction, for example. And I think in a general sense that his ruminations on addiction feel um, they are ex- they are the definition of exploitative. Right. But are they bad? Or are they things that, that should not be on the page? Well, I don't think that necessarily. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know. Long answer to that, but I think these are good and important questions. And I think, you know, my, my tiny little answer, and I think this is similar for you to Michael, is that uh, it, it doesn't feel productive to either of us to stop in that moment and be like, well, that's it. That's all we can think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, life is full of, of uh, deeply problematic and violent things we have to work through. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is not to say that there are not moments where I reach in, in a reading a book or watching a movie or something where I do hit something where I'm just like, I don't feel like dealing with this and I turn it off and never return to it. That definitely happens. And those moments are just, you know, does it feel like worth my time to uh, work through uh, whatever roadblock this thing is presenting uh, versus, you know, what what is in it for me at the end of this? Do I think mm-hmm. that working through yeah. this thing that I am, am tired of or just don't feel like I have the space or mental faculties for, uh, is it going to be worth it? Sometimes it's not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that's the other side of it. Yeah, and maybe that is implicit in what I'm saying, but I, I you know, I haven't voiced that. There is no ob- moral obligation for you to engage with any piece of media that you don't want to engage with. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. And maybe, maybe that's part of the issue here, too. Yeah. I, I just added that because I also said, you know, like that this is how I enjoy things uh, by picking them apart. Mm-hmm. But this does not mean that I have an interest in picking apart everything. <laughs> Yeah, there's a very famous, you know, I wrote an essay uh, about a very famous indie game designer a few years ago where I just said, look, I'm not playing this shit uh, Mm -hmm. because I believe that what is happening in this game that this creator has made is just pure fucking poison. I think that it is awful. And I think that even engaging with it uh, is signing something over um, that I just don't want to be involved in. I don't even want to have to think through these repercussions because I understand the situation as it is and the way that this creator is framing this issue sucks Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to engage with it. And I think that every single person has that out, you know, fundamentally. Mm -hmm. Um, You do not have to engage with the thing. And there's a lot of social pressures to make you feel like you have to, right? There's, There's a lot of kind of cultural social pressure to make you feel like you need to watch, for example. I mean, here, here's an example from my own life. I stopped watching Game of Thrones because of the sheer number of brutal sexual assaults that happened in the first two seasons. And mm-hmm. my wife and I were, were sitting there, my very brave wife, of course, uh, were sitting there watching the show. And it, like halfway through season two, we were like, why are we doing this? Like, we hate fucking watching this. We hate seeing these things happen. Why are we wasting our time doing it? And we just stopped watching it. Um, I think that there's a lot of kind of social tidal wave vibes that make you feel like you need to engage with those kinds of things. And I think that there's often this kind of vibe, too, that it's like, it's a great work. You know, something is a great work of literature. It's a great film. So you should engage with it, even if you find that distressing to do. And uh, I just don't think that that's true. I think that you should. That everyone has an escape hatch for every single piece of art that exists on the planet. 
um, and you should be able to uh, engage with those at will. Mm-hmm. I don't think there is a unique book or film or song or anything on the planet that, uh, <laughs> you know, that like walking through the, the swamps of sorrows with it <laughs> is going to like make you so good of a person that you need to sit through something that you find distressing. So, I, you know, I guess everything that we have said is within that bubble of like, yeah, just if you if you think Stephen King is is too problematic or too um, uh, difficult or so affectively horrifying that you don't want to engage with it, then then you should not have to, and you don't. Um, and there should be no like sense of moral failing on anyone's part um, because that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to talk about that because th- this first question that we got from uh, or this first part of this question from B, right? That one horrifying scene, I know what that horrifying scene is. I was going to say, like, B does not tell us what this book is, but I have a pretty good idea. Yeah, I have, like, a, an extremely good idea <laughs> of what that scene is. And we're and we're going to talk about it on the show, and we're going to have to wrestle with it. And it is a scene that is uh, un, unforgivable um, in the sense that I can rationalize every single part of it. And I've done it. Like, it, it, we've talked about it on the Discord. I can tell you exactly what I think Stephen King is thinking there. And I feel pretty confident that my interpretation is right. It still is terrible. Mm-hmm. It's garbage. If you cut it out of the thing, you would lose nothing. Um, and I think you can have both of those thoughts at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that that's a critical part. So not to monologue about this, but but I think these are good questions. And I think these are, these are things that come up enough on the Discord and on Twitter that I do think having kind of a long-form answer here is helpful. Yeah. Um, there's just one final question in this category, and we've actually, I think, already gone some way to answering it. But Nat from Canada writes in to say, I've particularly enjoyed listening to your commentary on the politics of King's novels as someone with, shall we say, an underdeveloped critical apparatus seeing how regressive ideas can show up unexpectedly in the media I consume is always eye-opening. My question, do you approach works that are more upfront about their politics differently from works like King's, which are supposedly quote-unquote just stories? Obviously, a creator's assertions about their work aren't truth from on high, but what are some fruitful avenues for interrogating the values that a work expresses? Um, I, I have a, well, I'll, I'll, I'll hop on this, even though I've been monologuing. I was going to say, I could take this one if you need a moment to, to breathe. Uh, please do, because I've been just chatting up a storm here. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so my response, uh, do, do I approach works that are more upfront about their politics differently? Uh, I mean, yes and no, in the sense that if a work is being upfront about its politics, I am, that's like, that's a thing I'm going to listen to. Um, like if if the book is trying to tell me here is what I believe, uh, then I'm going to listen to it because sure, let's find out what you think you believe. Um, and that's the key <laughs> is uh, like, tell me what you think you believe. And then I'm going to try to step outside of that frame and see, you know, where things maybe aren't working out the way that you think they are or where I hold. So this is the other kind of like fundamental thing for me. Uh, And this is like a deeply, you know, I think this is like a deeply idiosyncratic, how does Michael read things or interact with the world? Uh, But kind of a question I'm always asking myself is, what does the creator believe about the world for this to make sense, right? For the thing that Mm -hmm. they are telling me or for uh, the, the, the thing that they are trying to make their work of art say, what must they believe about the world, believe to be utterly true for this to make sense as something that they are advocating for or, uh, uh, you know, uh, pushing for in whatever, whatever sense. Um, and do I agree? 
Like, is that a thing that I agree with or does it conflict with some other thing that I agree with or does it seem to me kind of close to uh, another form of reasoning that I don't agree with and I want to make sure that, uh, you know, these things aren't kind of cross-contaminating or whatever. I'm speaking in in, in vague generalities, um, but the reason for this uh, is because otherwise it, it, it requires me to talk a little bit about my childhood reading Ayn Rand, um, which I read quite a bit of. <laughs> This has been a, this has been a great uh, episode for uh, biographical information. <laughs> yeah, I, but uh, straight up, right? I read a lot of Ayn Rand when I was a teenager, uh, and I was, and I, I say this sort of like very vaguely on board with it, right? There's there's a an alternate timeline out there where you get a very different Michael, um, who's not a Michael that this Michael likes a lot. Uh, but one of the things that I will say from now until forever is what was unexpectedly formative for me about Ayn Rand is that all of her work is just the here is what I believe and I'm going to tell you and mm -hmm. I've got a thousand pages in which I'm going to explain for you the things that I believe here's all of my values here are all of the things that I think are important uh, and I'm going to give them a central place and I am just going to talk endlessly about all of this right a kind of uh there, there's a a sort of neurotic attempt in in randian writing uh to just like push everything to the surface right to evacuate all sort of subtext and interiority and so on um and this got so the the, the turning point comes for me when i go to college and i learn the word ideology <laughs> uh, like literally uh, the professor like starts talking to us about ideology one day in class and sort of defining it for us and how it works and I'm like oh holy shit this is what Ayn Rand is trying to do like this is how Ayn Rand texts work is she is trying to manufacture an ideology because she's all about sort of you know rationalizing your belief system so none of the principles contradict with each other and it's just all this bullshit um, but like straight up i it gave me this really weird foothold because you know i i the other thing to say here is that i didn't uh really fall into ayn rand because i really love those politics um i was a very sad teenager right i was a very unhappy person and this point in my life is associated with a lot of like really bad feelings um you know, heavy mental health stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's a kind of ugliness implicit in Randian thinking uh, that, uh, you know, it, it allowed me to have those feelings, but also say that they weren't those feelings. So as I start mm -hmm. feeling better about myself. <laughs> it allowed you to to, uh, to think of yourself as, you know, you just got the whole world on your shoulders, Michael. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, Ayn Rand is particularly predatory toward, I think, teenagers mm -hmm. uh, in that way. I think mm -hmm. that's why you meet so many people who are, uh, you know, adults who are libertarians and you find out that they read Atlas Shrugged at 12 years old. Mm -hmm. um, and it starts really unlocking a lot of things for me. But but go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, as I start becoming, frankly, less depressed uh, in college and I find myself uh, not really I'm like, oh, I don't really agree with Ayn Rand. Actually, this is the other funny thing that's relevant here. The the real turning point with me and Ayn Rand comes when I'm reading her book on aesthetics, uh, which I can't remember the name of. And it doesn't matter because it's bullshit. Uh, but there is a part in that book where she straight up says something like, uh, you know, horror movies or horror fiction is uh uh, anti-human and degenerate, right? Uh, because Ayn Rand has, this is the other thing about Ayn Rand is that she believes that art has a purpose. It needs to teach you. It yeah. needs to do these kinds of things, blah, 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 blah. And horror films, horror movies, um, 
horror fiction doesn't teach you anything about the inherent nobility of capital M man. It only uh, degrades him, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. And as someone who was into horror long, long before I had even heard of Ayn Rand, uh, I I was just like, I don't think that's true. Right. Because there was something that horror did for me. Um, and it, I think, you know, relates a lot to those negative feelings that I've talked about. But like there was something therapeutic for me about horror. And this is you know, a long, long way of saying uh, that for me, at least uh, the way that I have uh, learned to maneuver around media objects is all bound up in this experience of trying to find my own identity in and through them, and then having a moment uh, where I, you know, just my breakthrough realization of like, oh, these people aren't making these demands neutrally. They want the, they want something from me, right? They want me to believe something, and I want to know what that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that what you just said there is really crucial. I, if because I think part of what this question is uh, from Nat from Canada, uh, I, I think part of what animates this question is, uh, you know how do I think maybe differently about the texts I'm reading? And I think a big critical part of that is what you just said there in that thing, which is reading a book and having enough of yourself kind of there critical uh, and holding on to enough of these kind of questions to say, I think that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being able to, and I, I don't quite know how to explain it. You know, it's this kind of, of I've always had it. And I think you've always had it probably too. Right. And I know that some people just don't like, this is not the kind of like, way that they frame reading you know they are looking at the thing and they're kind of absorbed or immersed i've talked a million different times how i I experience nothing like immersion right like i never can get rid of my critical faculty um but the the good example that that i really did experience that that maybe is equivalent for other people is that um before i ever used a cam right when i was in college i like started taking uh photographs all the time like i bought a camera and i was like way into like walking around and taking photographs or things like that. And I realized after a couple months of doing that, that I was looking at the world differently. And I don't mean aesthetically, but I was able to like look at a tree and realize, oh shit, there's like multiple focal planes in this thing. Like I can look all the way in it, like all the way through the branches to the other side and focus in on that. Or I could look at the middle part, like the trunk, or I could look at the whole thing and kind of put the whole thing in focus. And it would be this kind of object in and of itself. And that had never happened to me before, like visually before I had used this kind of apparatus of the camera that, you know, through through its machinery, through a, a, a lens's focus, forced me to think in those terms of like, oh, dang, like, yeah, when you change the focal length of the camera, <laughs> you actually see different parts of the tree. And then I could kind of do that without the camera. I could like focus in and out. And I'm sure I'd been doing it passively because that's how eyeballs work, but I'd mm-hmm. never thought about that process before. And that to me, I think is is part of the way of thinking about literature critically in some ways is, is thinking there is an apparatus in between you and the text. It's not transparent, right? In the same way that looking at the tree is not transparent. There's an apparatus in between. It's my eyeballs working and changing things. Um, when you are reading the text, you are transparently, quote unquote, looking at things, but there are all kinds of interpretive apparatuses. And one of them is this kind of vision of what the work is from the author. Um, and so, you know, to go to answer the actual question here, uh, do you approach works that are more upfront about their politics differently the, uh, from works like King's, which are supposedly just stories? And I would say that, yes, I do. 
first, yes, I do. Absolutely. Because if someone is upfront about what they think, then much like you, Michael, I think, okay, well, do you really believe that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or do do you just, you know, say that? And you can look at something like the Mages and Murder Dads episodes uh, right now on Disco Elysium to kind of see me doing that in real time. Um, Because there's a lot of kind of espoused leftist politics that are in those games that obviously resonate with a lot of people. But Knowing that and playing the game with that in mind, I, I have a lot of friction, I think, with some of the parts of that game um, uh, based on what it purportedly is doing versus what I actually think it's doing when I'm playing it. Um, I had a very similar relationship to Sorry to Bother You, where I, that, that really made um, knowing uh, Boots Riley's politics really made some of the things about, uh, for example, its treatment of women in that story that really stuck out to me because of what it was saying. Um, but for Stephen King, right, they, they are, quote, you know, quote, unquote, just stories. But at the same time, they are like, we know what Stephen King thinks about basically everything on the planet. The man, the man mm-hmm. can't stop talking about what he believes. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, I think that that can always be um, helpful because, for example, right, like Stephen King says that he's like a good old capital L liberal, right? Like he is he's all about like. The triumph of the human spirit and of like human beings being able to kind of make the world in their image and equality for all and things like that. Um, but then you read, for example, in all of his works so far, you read the way that he thinks about uh, race, like his racial imaginary and the way that he thinks about how race works in America. And uh, I don't think that that lines up with his values or what he thinks his values are necessarily. Um, and so I think you can kind of always work backward from what does the thing think it's doing? And then how does it actually do it? And then the dissonance between those things, that's critical analysis to me, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the work of doing critical analysis is learning to figure out what the words are in order to do that, mm-hmm. you know, in order to articulate what you think's happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, maybe hopefully that's an answer. Okay. Uh, I think it is. Uh, our next sort of set of questions are uh, ones that I've uh, put together on the, on grounds of, they're about genre and craft, kind of. Uh, so this next uh, email actually, um, it came unsigned. There was a name associated with the email itself, but I am not sure if uh, you wanted your name to be read. So I'm going to treat you as anonymous, dear listener. You're one of them, I assume. I assume you're listening to this show. Um, <laughs> just firing off emails. Yeah, it's just like I heard there. I heard someone was doing a Q&A app. Let's, <laughs> uh, let's see what I can get in. Um, So Anonymous asks, uh, Stephen King's writing style of no outlines and desire to stick to the ordinary seems antithetical to the creation of science fiction stories. Yet it seems that King has a a desire to tell such tales as expressed in his interest in uh, SF and Dan's Macabre with the inclusion of psychic powers and dystopias. I'm interested if you can help explain the seeming contradiction. Is it the simple answer that King's style of the ordinary mixed with horror is what got him to be popular or uh, the popular author that he is, or is there something more to it? Um, and then there are sort of two sub questions here uh, as a fun thought experiment. And if you're willing to speculate uh, on what a Stephen King dead space slash aliens gamer novel might look like. Uh, and then PS, I'm curious if you could expand on your take uh, on house of leaves. I assume that's directed at me because I'm the one who's uh, uh, talked about that before. So we'll see, uh, I guess, answering them in reverse order. Uh, 
my take on House of Leaves, basically short version, maybe an article will come out of this someday. Uh, House of Leaves is the first creepypasta, right? It's creepypasta, not before the internet, but before people are using the internet. Uh, and that would be its own entire podcast episode. Uh, but maybe that will help you start thinking and how the uh, House of Leaves presents itself as a found document, uh, the types of ways that it uh, really does or pretends to do uh, contextual research and, and things of that nature. Um, also, the ways that it kind of shifts modalities throughout. Uh, it's it's a book that is trying to anticipate things that the Internet is going to do to text is another way of looking at that. Mm -hmm. um, but then the actual question, uh, what are we doing with Stephen King and science fiction? Cameron, what do you think? Uh, uh, well, I want to answer this um, Stephen King Dead Space Aliens part. This might be a good way, actually, to get backward into that question. <laughs> well, I'm not going to treat it that way, unfortunately. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't see the good pathway there. Uh, uh, maybe you do. Maybe you can explain it to me. But uh, I think um, we're going to get to that novel. You know, I don't know if it... I, if you're asking a question, well, what would a Stephen King official Dead Space slash Aliens game novel look like? I don't know what that would look like. But if you're asking me, what would Stephen King doing something in the universe of something like Dead Space or Aliens of kind of um, ever-growing horror in a really delimited space that keeps people from escaping and does huge violence to them and augments their bodies in weird ways... Stephen King wrote that novel, <laughs> and it's called The Tommy Knockers, and everyone hates it. Yep. <laughs> but I don't hate it. I think, and also, kind of Desperation is that novel, too. Mm -hmm. um, actually, Desperation is very similar to Dead Space. It is. Now that I've not thought about that before. Mm -hmm. But uh, so he's kind of written something very similar to the question you're asking two times. So we'll get to it on the show, um, and uh, we'll see what you think about it. Um, I, so, so kind of going through this question about science fiction, kind of point by point here, right? So Stephen King's writing style, I'm reading the question. Stephen King's writing style of no outlines and desire to stick to the ordinary seems antithetical to the creation of science fiction stories. I don't think that's true. Um, I, I don't think that that is an accurate, um, w uh, a summary of like what science fiction's doing. And I'm not picking on, on anonymous here in any kind of way. I understand why you, why someone would say that. Um, but I think a big part of how science fiction works is that it's ordinary until it's not ordinary anymore, or it is the ordinary in an unordinary situation. So like, uh, human relationships and the way that human beings work, but damn it, they're in space and there's all these additional problems going on with it. Um, you know, speaking of authors, uh, who, uh, won't tell you their ideology, but you can work it backward. Um, Neil Stevenson does a lot of this kind of mm -hmm. science fiction where it's like just, just regular ass human beings, but you put regular ass human beings in extraordinary science fiction circumstances and he just kind of lets people do their thing and you see all kinds of stuff, uh, happen. Seven Eves is, uh. I think a really great novel, but that's all it is. It's just like, what if human jealousy happened and uh, there weren't that many humans left? Yeah. Like, what would you do? <laughs> um, and so this is the rest of the question. Yeah, it seems that King has a desire to tell such tales um, with the inclusion of psychic powers and dystopias. I'm curious if you can help explain the seeming contradiction. Is the simple answer that King's style of the ordinary mixed with horror is what got him to be popular author that he is, or is there something more to it? And I would say that I think Steve, I think Stephen King, for the most part, is doing what one of his the, the big P, Stephen King has said that one of his biggest of uh, um, not references but kind of biggest uh, influences. I don't know why I couldn't pull that. One of his biggest influences is uh, Richard Matheson, mm -hmm. and R Richard Matheson is the the king of doing this, right? Mm -hmm. Of like. 
oh shit, the vampire apocalypse happened. Here's this dude who lives there. And he's just (laughs) slowly but surely trying to figure out how you live there, right? And he's like kind of like, you know, kind of not a good dude. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, he's kind of like got bad politics, but he's just a regular guy for the most part. And uh, yep, there's vampires who stand outside his door every night and torment him and like yell at him constantly. What would he do? Right. Um, and so, so a lot of Matheson functions that way. And I would say that Stephen King is more often than not just doing, uh, the twilight zone, even though he like is really negative about the twilight zone and dance macabre, mm-hmm. he's just doing the twilight zone in different settings. So he's like, what if this kind of like normal group of people had to deal with X, Y, Z, weirdly extraordinary thing. And that, mm-hmm. that is a very common mode, you know, beyond the like space and, um, kind of like space fantastica cosmic cosmic fantastic stuff that we think about of like lasers and ray guns and rockets and whatever in science fiction there's a whole other common strain of science fiction that's just like hey uh it's a small town in england guess what everyone fell asleep for 24 hours and now all the women are pregnant hmm i I hope they deal with that (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. like that that, that's a whole um you know that's john wyndham of course and, Mm -hmm. and king has talked in positive ways about wyndham too so i think that if you look at who is Stephen King talking about in science fiction that he likes a lot? And you look at the kind of science fiction stuff that Stephen King does, it's really easy to see where he comes from. But I think you're right, mm-hmm. you know, Anonymous, that Stephen King is not doing what we would think, of, or especially our most popular science fiction right now of like, you know, on television, something like Westworld or in um, kind of in writing right now. Um, you know, Brandon Sanderson or something like that, that we associate mm-hmm. with like big world building. And, um, well, I guess, I mean, Sanderson, I guess is a fantasy author, but has this kind of science fiction, kind of vibe to him, but it doesn't look like, I understand where the question is coming from. Stephen King's science fiction does not really look like the thing that we slap the term science fiction on right now. It doesn't look like the alien franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, but that has more to do with the kind of historical curvature and movements of fantasy and science fiction, I think, than it does to do with like Stephen King's method in particular. Sorry, that's again a long answer. But um, I think if you look at Stephen King's uh, references and who he's talking about, he very much fits in the line with those people. And you got to remember that if you are a science fiction writer who was working between 1930 and 1960, you were banging out novels very, very quickly, and you were banging out short stories even quicker. And uh, I don't think Stephen King's lack of a um, uh, outline is very uncommon for that set of people either. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll have a, a my brief two cents on this because it's going to come back in a later question. Uh, but I think one of the things to suss out here is the fact that Stephen King, and, and this touches on something I said in, in the Running Man episode, uh, Stephen King is not a guy who is terribly interested in imagining a world, which is to say uh, uh, fantasizing a new world, an alternate world, uh, which is to say in modern parlance, world building. Uh, in, in sort of the Matheson example, right? Uh, think of something like terror at 20,000 feet, which is just a guy gets on a plane on an overnight flight and he looks out the window and there's a gremlin on the wing. Uh, <laughs> right. There's, there's, there's a way in which uh Steve and, and Wyndham is the same way, right? Uh, everyone falls asleep and then all the women wake up pregnant or uh, a comet goes over the earth and it blinds a whole bunch of people. And then these uh, plants mutate and start eating the blind people. Uh, it's about 
the everything that is everything is normal up until the point that it isn't anymore. Uh, whereas something like, and I think specifically here about Dead Space, when I remember that franchise kind of first got launched, there was all this talk about uh, who who did they bring in to write the lore for it? Oh, I have no idea. Some comics. I can guy. look it up while you're while you're talking. I can look it up. Yeah, uh, but they when when uh, Dead Space launched, like it was the spear tip of a franchise, and it was like here is the setting that we've built. Right, it is Ishimura. Uh, it is this uh, space station, or it's a, a spaceship actually built by this company orbiting this planet uh, back on Earth. Here is how things look that resulted in this thing being built and and going off and and doing what it's doing. Uh, and Stephen King, uh, if he if you were to have him write Dead Space, uh, he's just going to be like, we were on a starship. It was built by the whatever corporation. <laughs> and like, that's it. Right. Like, that's really all you need for Stephen King, uh, because it, I think of something like The Jaunt, uh, which we haven't read yet. But like, that's a horror mm-hmm. science fiction story. And I think it's probably it's playing in a space very close to where uh, Dead Space and aliens end up. Um, but there's a reason where I think, as you said, Cameron, uh, when he really writes a Dead Space type story in the Tommyknockers or in Desperation, uh, those are stories that take place on Earth because he doesn't have to build a world around it. He just kind of can, you know, import existing reality in this way. And that's not like a good or bad thing. It's just, I think it's, you know, in terms of like what Stephen King cares about and what he likes to do and what he thinks is interesting, I don't think he approaches world building in in um, kind of this contemporary post-Tolkien way, even though he's very mm-hmm. much a post-Tolkien writer. Yeah, he uh, the way he thinks about those things is he treats science fiction like a ghost story, mm-hmm. right? Which is like, hey, we're all bebopping around the world, and oh shit, there's a ghost. <laughs> like, let's deal with that, I guess, right? There, there's a gremlin out there, um, you know. Oh, the swamp's haunted again. Damn it, like that kind of thing. Um, but for Stephen King, it's not. Oh, the swamp is haunted. It's like, oh shit, kids got psychic powers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is, I think, part of the tension, you know, that that I've pointed out in these first, you know, few years of works is that you know Stephen King is known as a horror writer, but all of these books are science fiction, and I think it's because the kind of way he thinks about the world. I think you're exactly right. Is is from this kind of. Um, taking the setting as a given Mm -hmm. and that's how that's how horror works for the most part work right Right. well Um, i mean what if there was a girl in a high school in small town maine and everyone hated her and picked on her because this is the type of person who exists in small rural high schools and then what if it turned out she was telekinetic mm -hmm. right like that's the that's the swerve for king yep uh the uh uh I had no idea about this, by the way, but uh, Dead Space, uh, this is on Wikipedia. The scenario was a collaborative effort between Warren Ellis, Rick Remender, and Anthony Johnston. Mm. Yeah. Um, So they brought in a bunch of comics people. Warren Ellis, notably, huge alleged sex pest. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you can read the reporting on it. Yes, go go read that. But anyway, I was just trying to remember because I like that's but the point there is just I remember when Dead Space launched as a franchise it was launched as a franchise they were trying to say like here is all the world building we've done and so on and so forth because uh we currently have a market that prizes those things and king came uh to prominence in a market that did not (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not not even came to prominence but like came of age learned to read and write in in a in a world and in a market that uh that's not what you cared about when you were working with fiction um yep but sort of similarly uh in a couple of these next questions, uh, 
we have Nick who writes in and asks, uh, I have a weird broad question, but one which I think both Michael and Cameron are uniquely equipped to handle. How do we read canon in the early Kingiverse? Having grown up with Marvel Comics' model of continuity, I was always used to canon as something managed by the holders of the intellectual property, i.e. Stan Lee or other editors making executive decisions about what does or does not count for a story, usually to a polarized reception. But in the early Kingiverse, most of these textual interconnections take the form of neat Easter eggs. There's no strong indication of a canon, and it's my understanding that this that there won't be for some while. Stephen King seems to take the walled new approach to world building rather than a comic book model and maybe that speaks to the nature of publishing novels versus monthly serial comic books but how do we track the development of Stephen King's understanding of canon is the 1978 version of the stand canon do the Kingiverse or does the later edition supersede it? To what extent is it authorial intent to read a recurring character like Randall Flagg through canon and to what extent is that a fandom activity? Uh, and sort of similarly, uh, and I, I'm going to read these questions together because I think they uh, really do align. Um, Austin writes in and says, With the Gunslinger episode and thus the start of the Dark Tower just around the corner, I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which Kings explored broader setting continuity and lore, capital L, thus far. In a world where we're inundated by cinematic universes and crossover events, from the MCU to Shyamalan's Unbreakable Split Glass universe, what stands out the most is how restrained King has been about this. Yes, there are some outright follow-ups, like Jerusalem's Lot, but he's mostly just reused locations, background events, underlying concepts, and a few terms here or there. Danny, Carrie, and Charlie never team up. Johnny Smith might sense a nuclear apocalypse, but he doesn't sense the plague that dominates the early parts of the stand. And I'm absolutely good with that. But now that we're on the precipice of King's world-building extravaganza, I am curious what you think uh, both about how he's done it so far and how he's teeing up to do it going forward. Are you looking forward to more uh, capital P, capital N, proper nouns, and capital IC, important categories of people? And how, if at all, do you think King's work there intersects with the broader pop cultural side, a slide in this direction? Uh, I think that Stephen King, tr I think that, that Stephen King's like canon. Mm -hmm. And I think that Cujo is really instructive here, being the second Castle Rock story. I think that his understanding of canon up to the point where he starts building out the Dark Tower universe, which is the precipice that... Um, that Austin's referring to there. I think the way that he thinks of canon is just like the way that you talk about the world around you. Um, I think he, I think that, that his shared universe is a byproduct of Stephen King just doing the kind of thing that, um, it, it, being really good at capturing the way people actually talk about the world. And we've talked about that a million times. Like if you live somewhere, especially in a rural area, and something really weird happens somewhere else, you're going to talk about it, mm -hmm. right? Or if, like, something really terrible. Uh, let me give you a good example, because I, I kind of, like, grew up a little bit in a Stephen King novel. Yes, I was attacked by a rabid dog. <laughs> no, I don't like talking about it. No, that didn't happen. Um, but, okay, so I, I grew up in a town, or uh, uh, grew up in a place where a uh, horrible murder had happened. Mm-hmm. 
um, 20 years before. Mm-hmm. This, this, is re- this is actually true. Mm-hmm. It happened in, a really horrible murder happened in the 1980s, and it was a horrible murder that uh, it is shrouded with all, and still is kind of shrouded with all kinds of weird mystery to it. Basically, the, the general gist is that there were two uh, gay men who lived uh, out in the woods, and they had a reputation locally that they were rich. And uh, this is in the 70s and the 80s. They had a reputation that they were rich and they had uh, quite a few things. They had built a home out of brick and they were kind of homesteaders from the Northeast, basically. Um, You know, they were coming to rural Georgia to kind of uh, escape in that very 70s mode. Mm -hmm. Um, They were murdered. Uh, They were murdered by people who were not really from the local area, but had heard from other people that these people were rich and these people went out to rob them, essentially, and they ended up murdering them. And uh, just just awful. It's awful to read about, awful to kind of grow up knowing about. And that was a location you could go to their homestead. It's out in the middle of the woods, trees growing up all around it. You have to walk really far off a dirt road to get there. And it's kind of like a little bit of a, uh, you know, rite of passage where I come from, mm-hmm. where, where you go and do that. And I certainly did that when I was, I don't know, in early high school, maybe. Um that was referenced. The, the I'm, I'm trying to not give too much detail here, uh, in the sense of like I don't think you should like go and like research the story or anything. And I would appreciate you know if you figure this out or you hear this not to go and um, you know kind of blow this up. Um, I, there are already like kind of tourists who show up there to like go and do that, and it's really weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but that's all to say. So I grew up my whole life with this being referenced all the time mm-hmm. in the exact same way that, uh, you know, the serial killings are referenced in Cujo about um, the dead zone. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm blanking on the serial killer's name. Frank Dodd. Uh, Frank Dodd. Um, in that kind of way of like, oh, this happened and the like it's haunted there. You know, I definitely grew up and like everyone who has been there has this like story of, oh, I heard, heard noises. There, there's a long form story that people tell because these people, uh, these two men famously had um, some dogs um, that would like run around in the woods. And if you're up there, you can hear the dogs running through the woods and barking. You're in you're in uh, you're in a rural area in the, in a deep wooded area. You're going to hear dogs barking no matter what, no matter what uh, you know direction you go in. Um, but so so I grew up in this. I grew up exactly in the kind of scenario that would do this. And I think that King Canonicity up until the uh, the Dark Tower kind of gets going. That kind of King Canonicity is the kind of Canonicity of the small town of like these horrible things where we kind of talk about it and we don't really talk about it. It has a little bit of legendy vibe to it. Um, and, uh, you know, you can imagine other places where those things are happening and strange things where those things are happening. Um, and that's how I kind of feel about it, right? There, obviously, there's like shared phenomenon, like the shining that, that appear there that get reused. Mm-hmm. But I think the kind of world canonicity that we're talking about, the world building that you're that we were talking about before, that has a particular kind of flavor to it that feels very real to me. Um, but it turns into, I think, more traditional tokenalia kind of stuff. Uh, once we get to the dark tower, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to edit this out because it's uh, sort of uh, beside the point. But I just want you. To, I also don't want it to seem like I'm trying to one up you. Uh, but do you know what my version of this is? Of the of, Do you also have a small town murder? <laughs> uh, sort of. Uh, Reverend Jim Jones is mm. from my hometown. Jesus. And 
And so, yeah. So like my one of my friends in school, like his dad was childhood friends with Jim Jones. Like you walked around oh. my hometown and like asked an, like, asked a person of a certain age and pushed back far enough. And they had a Jim Jones story. Well, absolutely. Well, I think that's part of it, right? I, I, I don't think you have to edit. I mean, you can edit this out if you want to. Do you <laughs> want to edit this out or do you want to talk about it? Oh, we can talk about it, I guess. I just want I didn't want it to seem like you had this like very good pat example. And then I was like, my example is Reverend Jim Jones of no, <laughs> you know, I, Jonestown. I, no, I, I, <laughs> I don't. This is not a point of pride yeah. for me. So, no, uh, I, you know, I don't think that that rural small town murders are, um, you know, but but I think the what that demonstrates is like everywhere has this. I think this this is part of answering the question of like what makes Stephen King work. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because, you know, I, unfortunately, I think that, you know, you were referring to creepypasta earlier. I think in some ways the the emergence of creepypasta has has robbed has robbed us of local history and local weird horror, because like what I just said. No matter how fancifully I wrote it, and I think people actually have tried to write books about it and maybe have published books at this point about it, it just doesn't match up to, like, Jim Jones, right? And mm-hmm. it doesn't match up to, like, even the fictional creepypasta kind of horror that, that goes around, right? It, it doesn't make its way up to true crime level. But when I was 12 years old and I heard people talking about it and I didn't have access to a whole universe of information, it was pretty goddamn scary and, and pretty weird, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes Stephen King work is that it, everything that Stephen King says and every and the way that Stephen King writes about his world up to a certain point feels like it could happen just around the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why it is so scary in particular. And I think that why that hits, that's why it hits people pretty hard is that Stephen King, by the time he gets to it, seems like he's figured out how to scale that up to city size rather than just like rural area, rural area size. And that really makes it kind of get more freaky. But, but I no, I think that's right. I think that, you know, whether it's you with Jim Jones or it's me with this kind of story I just told that, that that those have Stephen King flavor to them. And it's not because Stephen King uh, has like infected our mind and made us think that it's that Stephen King is very good at hearing that kind of thing or growing up in that kind of, of uh, oral culture and then turning that into the way he thinks about his worlds and putting that in those worlds. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, you know, I think he's just talented at that. I think that really is something that marks Stephen King differently from other horror writers. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't really address the the second question from Austin there. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take over uh, more more fully now. And just to tack on some of the things Nick said, um, just in terms of like, you know, what is Stephen King's understanding of canon sort of personally is the 19 set. And I'm reading the question here is the 1978 version of the stand canon to the King reverse or does the later uh, edition supersede it? Um, King does not give a shit in, in some ways is the actual answer here. Like there's for King, it's like, what am I publishing? Like what is published? What is on the shelves? And so clearly like the stand complete and uncut, he wants people to, to come to, uh, rather than the original, like 1978 text that said, um, when we're going to get into the dark tower, uh, I'm sorry for kind of some spoilers here, but we're going to get a kind of uh, metaphysical or ontological fable out of the dark tower uh, that I think is King trying to explain the the coexistence of his various stories. Uh, and the, the, the reading of it that I'll give you here is that one, uh, God is a storyteller. 
uh, and then two, all possible drafts of what he's written coexist. Uh, because there is a point in the Dark Tower where characters travel through what I am pretty sure is a prototype draft of the stand. Uh, which is to say, um, I have read things about King's attempts to write an early version of the stand, uh, and those things show up weirdly enough in a dark tower book that is clearly referencing the stand, but there are elements in that reference that, um, what, what don't even map to the original text, right? The 1978 text, there seems to be a real sense at some point, uh, for King that he starts thinking about his worlds as being sort of just like coextensive drafts. Um, mm -hmm. So then the other sort of question is, you know, like, is the recurring character of Randall Flagg through canon like a sort of a thing that Steve is doing or is that a fandom activity? And the answer is it's both, uh, because by and large, you know, I've talked about this before. People on like the Stephen King listservs were always like, oh, is this character secretly Randall Flagg? Uh, and then it becomes, I think, clear to me that enough people would ask Steve about this that he started thinking like, OK, who's secretly Randall Flagg? <laughs> uh or like in, in the case of the gunslinger right when he goes through and revises it for the the mm -hmm. republication literally who am i going to turn into randall flag who am i going to retcon into having been randall flag the whole time even though they weren't before um so there's that yeah and you know maybe part of the answer here too is that you know the this initial question here uh, says, you know, basically basically distinguishes between just kind of a naturalistic world-building mode where things just kind of get heaped onto one another and the Marvel style of like, all right, so here's like how these things all interconnect together. Um, Stephen, or Stephen King likes Marvel comic books. Mm -hmm. You know, like Stephen King likes all this stuff. I, I think that, you know, the uh, we can't... Stephen King is part of the same culture that we're a part of, right? And he's, like, obviously substantially older, but he's reading Marvel comics in the 60s, and he's engaging in all that kind of stuff. We're, we're going to be talking about that on the Creepshow episode, that I, I'm sure. But, uh, it, you know, in some ways, like, him, him um, you know, capital W, capital B, world-building here is him engaging with the media in the same way that we engage with the media. And he, I think you're right. I think he starts thinking, well, what if I could do that? Like, what if I could be like Stan Lee a little bit? Right. Um, and, and what if I could appear in the movie? <laughs> um, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, anyway. Right. And so then to sort of, you know, tack on to the, the last part of Austin's question, you know, are you looking forward to kind of all of this coming together? Uh, the answer is really no. Uh, one, because I know how it all, I know where it all ends. <laughs> there was a time when I think this was happening live, especially as we were kind of heading into the end of the Dark Tower stuff, uh, where it was kind of like, well, what's going to happen next, right? How is this all going to to sort of um, come together or is it going to come together? There was still sort of the, the excitation of uh, possibility. Um, but in general, uh, and, and this is also part of this, you know, how does King's work intersect with the broader pop cultural slide in this direction. Um, uh, in general, I don't like this type of storytelling. I really don't. Mm -hmm. I do not like shared continuities. And this was a story that I was telling you, Cameron, just, a you know, the other day. But I remember being more more autobiography. I remember being a little kid being really into Batman and thinking like, oh, I want to read some Batman comics. 
Um, and then I got some Batman comics and I found out that Batman and Superman coexisted. And I was like, like, this is stupid. I hate this. This like completely invalidates everything that I find interesting about either of these characters. And I stopped like there and then like I stopped liking superheroes <laughs> Um because I just I do not like shared continuity, really. Uh, you know, I think that there are like I like the earlier stuff here where it is kind of Easter eggy. Uh, but the point where it all has to kind of come together uh, is not something that I am interested in. And in fact, it's been one of the most disappointing things about like the past 15 years of my life is watching uh, kind of mass media uh, move into this mode. And like from day one, I have been complaining about the Marvel project. Uh, and if anything, uh, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Uh, and if mm -hmm. anything, uh, the, the, the one joy that I have had is like finding other people like slowly start to pick up the same thing that, you know, the same drum that I've been beating since I was a kid, which is that like superheroes shouldn't coexist. They're uninteresting if they do. <laughs> I, I love the sheer, like the absolute pessimism <laughs> involved here. I, I mean, I mean, I guess I'm in the same boat, right? You know, I've been, I've been very vocally critical of kind of the Marvel project. Um, and, and you know, my, my difference here, right. Or my, well, I guess the thing to say, I'm a sucker for this shit. Like, I love a shared universe. I was way into the Dark Tower stuff. Um, I, you know, really enjoy the kind of Marvel shared universe kind of stuff. But the the kind of turn that I take from it, um, or maybe the, the, the difference between uh, your position here and mine, Michael, is because I'm similarly cynical and, and kind of fed up with the Marvel Cinematic Universe stuff. Um, and, and like the Star Warsification of everything. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not particularly interested in that. And, and maybe the difference here is that I, what's happened is that shared universes have taken on a particular type. Yeah. Right? Like, I like a shared universe that asks you to do a little bit of work to, like, make things connect up or think about them in certain kinds of ways. I don't like shared universes that are, that are functionally uh, either what I would call, like, Marvel event-based which is like, all right, all these things are getting, we know what all these characters are and they all need to get together because of civil war, right? Mm -hmm. Like they've all got to come together because there's a big conflict to deal with. And that, and that event will rocket through all of their individual kind of like local worlds, but ultimately it's all so that they can get together, right? And the Marvel Cinematic Universe exists because of comic book events like Civil War, right? Of, of being able to say, oh shit, there are all these pathways into it. And then if you go into it, you kind of want to follow all those pathways back out. You're going to watch all these movies, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really like that because that just the, the vibe top to bottom for me for all of that is this is a way of milking me for money. Um, and that's certainly the way that Marvel Comics has seen all of these events forever. It's not because they they need 150 different issues in order in all these different series in order to tell the story really well. It's because they want you to purchase all of these comic books in an increasingly non-profitable, especially in the early 2000s, a non-profitable uh, or less profitable direct comics market, right? Like this is a scenario under which the economics are driving the bus. Mm -hmm. And in, in Marvel or Star Wars, you know, MCU or Star Warsification, economics drive the bus. In some ways, I think that that maybe is where Stephen King goes wrong with um, 
uh, with the Dark Towers that economics start driving the bus. Like, I like a good old-fashioned Gene Wolfe shared universe, mm. right? Where there are like thousands of years in between all of these different kind of loosely tied together uh, New Sun books, right? Mm-hmm. Or Sun, I guess, is the 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 way to think about the what are, how many are there now like 12 uh, uh something like that something yeah 10 12 anyway but uh, i'm okay with that i really like that a lot i even like uh you know when i was a kid i read a lot of the mancazin wars that was a big like part of my uh adolescent time of reading these things which is like it's the ring world universe that larry niven you mm-hmm. know notoriously mm-hmm. hyper libertarian <laughs> author larry niven uh, you know you you were with ayn rand and i was reading larry niven um, but, uh, you know, but he created this universe and he was like, all right, well, um, I guess I'll kind of like pay attention to what you're doing, but I'm going to create these edited volumes and just whoever wants to play in this universe can, and I'll just put them together in books. And so there's like six volumes or something of just random people writing in this big universe that the known space is what the shared universe is called. And so I was really into that as, as a kid and it never felt like all of this had to culminate together in big events to, to get me really excited. It was just, Hey, this is a world where things are happening and you can become more familiar with it. And in becoming more familiar with it, you can see resonances or recognize characters or whatever. Um, you know, I was really into Dragonlance and the forgotten realms as a kid and they kind of work that same way too, even though those are like, you know, just shared corporate properties essentially so that's all to say i i'm not particularly dreading going into this for the stephen king years because when i read all these novels i did not read them in chronological order and i think it's going to be very interesting to to watch the dark tower universe develop over 20 years almost Mm -hmm. chronologically and then very rapidly (laughs) (laughs) yes yeah and then very rapidly kind of wrap up um, I think that'll be fascinating. And what's interesting, too, is that in the sequence of novels, they're not all, con- you know, canonical Dark Tower novels. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not all novels that focus on that story or even move it or even reference it in any way. And so I think it'll I think it will be more exciting to do than I was initially dreading, mm. honestly, having read these first few. Uh, pull me again in the year to see if I feel the same way. Yeah. And I guess just to uh, revise something that I was saying, because you, you reminded me of Star Wars in particular, I actually really I got into the EU. So contrary to what I just said about thinking shared universes are crap. But the other thing that you said about whether or not it's like milking money from you, I think that was actually it. I think that's like the the thing that I zeroed in on as a kid when I first like recognized comics, because I was like, oh, I bought this Batman comic and they want me to buy a Superman comic in order to understand what's happening here. Because I remember what I liked about like uh, Star Wars uh, and specifically sort of like all of the lore and, and, and stuff around that is that. First of all, the lore was stuff like, oh, that guy's got a cool helmet. I can like open up a book and figure out like what sort of atmosphere that helmet was built for. But it doesn't matter. Like, I don't actually need to know that. But I if I wanted to know that I could find that out. And so much of the stuff in the expanded universe for Star Wars was stuff that I felt no obligation to give a damn about. (laughs) Um, And I think that was really and that's sort of what made um, early King kind of connections work for me is that it was, oh, they just mentioned Jerusalem's lot. Right. The the, the moment of this does not not having read Salem's lot at this point would not pose a stumbling block to your understanding of the novel that you're currently reading. It's not secretly an ad for uh, trying to get you to read other Stephen King works. Uh, it is more about this kind of uh, these things. Call, it, it's more of the Gene Wolfe kind of these things just kind of exist in the same plane. Right. Uh, yeah. Versus whatever else. 
I mean, I, I at the end of the day, I think I, I think I like something that rewards kind of critical thinking about it. So, you know, the, the big universification of like Twin Peaks, even though it's like contained, right? I, you know, this is not a thousand different works. I enjoy that quite a bit, but it's because it's it's about kind of thinking about resonances and, uh, you know, how things rhyme with one another across the work mm-hmm. um, and what something might represent or what what's what might be something else in disguise. That's a big you know part of Twin Peaks. Um, whereas I think that the vast majority of that, the Star Warsification of everything has turned into recognize the robot, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, that's the, that's, that's big Jeff, the robot. Mm-hmm. There he is. Mm-hmm. Oh, he, he was in the first one. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he was in episode eight. And I don't find that very interesting. Um, I, and I get why it exists because it helps generate a lot of secondary content. You know, I just I just got to see an article pass through my timeline that was like every Easter egg in Black Widow. And like I could not care less about that, mm-hmm. even even a little bit. I do not care about the Easter egg. I, I care about the the ways that this thing is asking me to think about its world, not to um, uh, you know play Where's Waldo. <laughs> um, and I, I think to Stephen King's credit, it never turns into Where's Waldo, no. which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. That is that is a good thing about it. In fact, uh, in some ways, I feel like where king ends up going with all this works so much against where this kind of big franchise world <laughs> logic wants to go and there's something delicious about that to me <laughs> yeah i think why that's why it's not successful i think that's why like the dark tower hbo series has never gotten off the ground even though that's been talked about for a full decade and they made the movie that was going to be part of a franchise that very clearly is not going to get franchised it's because it, it's this kind of self-sabotaging system mm-hmm. where where Stephen king repeatedly will be like hey you found waldo good job that's not waldo you idiot <laughs> <laughs> you jerk <laughs> how dare you how dare you waldo's not even real right. waldo <laughs> waldo was made up in a previous book to trick you yeah exactly <laughs> exactly an old law made up waldo just to trick you mm-hmm. uh, you buffoon <laughs> like there, there's some like real aggression going on about that that, that is entertaining so anyway yeah that's all to say. That's a big, long lore answer, but it, it's an important question based on what we're about to uh, what we're about to be doing over the next, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 books. So the last question in this kind of segment um, comes from uh, Ari. Uh, you've mentioned a few times that one of King's gifts as a writer is the ability to bring out a supporting character's personality and history using only a few lines of text and that this is present pretty much from the start of his writing. Now you now you're several books in, uh, do you think King is improving this skill over time with practice, or is it something that's just constant and a part of who he is? Additionally, are there any technical aspects of his writing you do think that he noticeably improves on over the course of his career, or things he gets much worse at, or his or is his writing too varied to, to make those sorts of sleep, uh, sweeping claims? Uh, and P.S., if I'm allowed to ask another question, which, if any book, are you uh, each most looking forward to covering on the show? Hmm. Do you want to answer that one first? Um, Do you know? I don't know. Uh, in fact, this is this is a thing that I've been turning over in my mind since I read this question a couple days ago, because I could not really say on, if only in as much as uh, the things that I was really curious about revisiting all kind of came in the in the earlier part. Um, I guess I'm kind of interested in going back to Pet Cemetery, uh, if only because I 
have a lot of thoughts about uh, what that book does with King's kind of normal mode of here's like a bourgeois like family tragedy story uh, plus whatever supernatural horror element I want to throw into it. Um, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm sort of looking. It's it's not like I'm excited, right? I'm just it's it's like an intellectual curiosity for the most part. Uh, I am into I, there, there are three in my mind that have come up that that I'm I'm really uh, not really interested in revisiting, but I'm interested in like reading and having a conversation about, which I think probably counts for this conversation. Uh, the Talisman. Mm-hmm. So so both of his Peter Straub like co-written books, The Talisman and Black House. Mm-hmm. Like those are two I'm very curious about because I really liked those uh, when I was a kid. Um, and uh, I remember like getting Black House from the library as soon as it came out. You know, I was so excited about it. You know, they had a bunch of copies of it or whatever because mm-hmm. like that was the hotness back then. Was like Stephen King in two thousand one. Um, and so I'm really curious about reading those and like seeing how they work now. You know, because I remember them being feeling very different from other Stephen King books. Like you could you can feel Peter Straub mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. Um, you, and, you don't and I'm get not really super deep. You don't get Go the narr- narratorial voice of of Black House without Peter Straub busting in and being like, "Hey, Steve, have you ever read Charles Dickens?" Yeah, it's weird. It's like I, I remember reading it, and just being like, "Oh, okay." Um, so, so I'm curious about revisiting those because they, to, in my mind, they are um, core Stephen King texts, but they're also weird outliers too. Of uh, you know, stylistically. Um, and then the other one is Cell, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because people hate Cell, and I think it's really good. <laughs> I like it, legitimately enjoy it. I read it not that long ago. I probably last read it like five, or only read it. I've only read it one time. I read it maybe five, six years ago, and I thought it was pretty rad. I think it's like a pretty good science fiction story, and I'm curious to read it if if you feel the same way, and we end up like becoming the the cell defenders or you know we could have drastically oppositional opinions here um we'll also of course for that bonus episode be watching the film which is similarly um distressingly uh weird (laughs) uh like just feature like john cusack just walking around like not doing anything i mean like that's that's i have never seen the film uh and not to you know show my hand too much it will be interesting i guess because uh, I don't know if I would say I like Cell, but what I do hate is zombie stories. And because Cell is kind of a zombie story that is dedicated to just like working backward on the zombie genre in a specific <laughs> yes. way, I actually really did like it when I read it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird because it does get talked about as a, a zombie story. And that's how it was marketed because that was kind of part of the zombie explosion wave mm-hmm. you know, of, of our, our whole pop culture of civilization caring about zombies for some reason but it's kind of not really a zombie story or, or at least in the way that you're talking about right it, it is working backward towards some uh, you know kind of 1970s and 1980s um ideas about zombies and, and then kind of like pretending as if we can start from there as opposed to like the 90s and the 2000s so anyway i think it, i'm looking forward to reading all of those because they are odd outliers that i think will really benefit from the just king things method um, to, as far as answering this like real uh, question, do I think that Stephen King is improving this skill over time with practice, like whatever, uh, whatever kind of skill, um, it's the quick introduction of characters. Yeah. Yeah. Like this kind of like sketching skill. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, <laughs> I think Stephen King, I don't think Stephen King really gets better or worse at doing anything. 
Um, over his career, I think just in certain works, he leans harder into it. You know, several times I've said that kind of cinematic technique that we talked about in Salem's Lot. That mm-hmm. I keep saying we're going to see more of it. And that's because really in the 80s, he starts leaning really heavily onto mm-hmm. it. Um, I don't think he gets any particularly better at it or worse at it. He just starts, he, he has six or seven tools in his toolbox. And in some books, he's leaning on some of them more than others. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think actually part of the shocking thing about Stephen King is that he is extremely consistent, mm-hmm. like in quality and style and tone. It just kind of depends on how he's feeling, which of the tools he's using in order to do that style and tone. Yeah, I, I agree. That, that was also my thought. I was like, actually, like Steve's just a, a sort of remarkably consistent writer in a lot of respects. I will say one, uh, well, the, the question is specifically about technical aspects, uh, but mm-hmm. uh, this is more of a, a sort of representational aspect. I do think he, he gets uh, better in in some ways about writing women. Um, and mm-hmm. there is, actually, I want to say in some ways, like I think straight up he does get better about writing women because there's going to be a point in the early 90s where it is clear, uh, and I don't even think, like it's clear just looking at the books that he's putting out, but I think he's even said as much uh, in interviews where he kind of sat down and thought to himself, like I should try writing like more and better women characters. Like I should have stories that are about women and like, that right like there is there is a clear moment where that seems to be a thing that occurs to him and he wants to stretch himself in that way and um yeah i have nothing to back this up and so this is pure speculation on my part and and of course as we get closer we'll probably do some research research on this and find out but i wonder how much that has to do with uh the oscar win for misery Mm. um and and him being kind of I mean, as far as I know, pretty heavily critiqued for the, the you know the way that that character is written. The Kathy Bates's character, I'm blanking on her name. Uh, uh, um, Annie, Annie Wilkes. Yeah, Annie. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I I wonder how much that's him being like, oh shit, like I've been acknowledged by the Academy, right? Obviously, it's Kathy Bates's performance, but he he is not that far away from that, right? My work is being acknowledged in this way and it's for you know a, a, a deeply and you know um i don't know bad bad representation doesn't seem to cover mm-hmm. it you know but but uh, a a particularly um misogynistic uh kind of writing of a woman mm-hmm. um and i don't know i don't I, that might be, that's pure speculation i don't know if that that is um related at all but the timing does certainly kind of feel mm-hmm. uh important there mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, the timing does work out and we'll, we'll see. Uh, but of course, just if, in case you're curious, curious, the kind of turn that I'm referring to are books like, um, Dolores Claiborne, uh, Gerald's Game and Rose Matter. Those are kind of, I think that the big three, uh, that signal that mm-hmm. shift of him trying to, to write about, uh, central women characters. Mm-hmm. And kind of referred to as his women novels. Yes. Uh, I, I certainly remember like the message board. I certainly was not as involved as you are in. Stephen King message boards, but when I saw that, those were often uh, uh, called the Stephen, Stephen King's novels about women or his women's novels, and then uh, absolutely hated. Yeah, a, uh, because of that. a lot of people in my circles would be like, "Do you think Tabitha wrote these and he just published them so she could get things, yeah. uh, you know, sold or whatever?" Uh, which is awful uh, and offensive because, like, Tabitha's published her own damn books. <laughs> Yeah, she's she could do that if she wanted to. Like, what on earth is gained by like 
Steve stealing yeah. her manuscripts. Yeah, it's like there was a conversation recently. Someone brought it up in the Discord, and this is not... I'm, I'm not bringing this up to, like, dunk on this person, because I think it's a very rational thing to, like, bring up. But they were talking about how um, that, that there was kind of this unspoken, or maybe, I guess, spoken thing in their English undergrad that Tabitha King had written the majority of Stephen King's books, or, like, a huge chunk of his books, because he was, like, so addicted to various substances and had, you know... Uh, issues with that and I, I feel similarly about that too it's like well he's pretty open about how tabitha helps him with ba- she's his first reader for many of these works and uh you know she she doesn't need that she is her a writer of her own regard and a good writer too right yeah you know? um uh she i think i think weirdly enough tabitha king might have been successful that's the real richard bachman experiment right? yeah like that's the one that matters I, there's an alternate world where Tabitha King is the the king we know, mm-hmm. and Stephen King is just like writing crime novels every now and again, <laughs> and we're like, oh, that's Tabitha's husband, yeah. you know. I, I heard I heard that he wrote her book about you know whatever a ghost in, in the lake house, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, she's an accomplished uh, you know writer on her own, and um, maybe we'll do that. Maybe we'll do like a just King things, uh, like a Tabitha King novel somewhere. I think we, we mentioned, uh, maybe doing that way back in almost like the first episode or something. And that's something I would very much like to do. Actually, Tabitha, would you like to guest, uh, because you have <laughs> saved us from so many bad titles. That's the other thing is like, uh, Tabitha is really out here. Like, you know, jumping between us, the general public and just the absolute awful titles that Steve picks for some of these books. Huh? Well, thanks. Thanks. But yeah, she's written one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Oh, she's written eight novels. Dang. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So. And she's got a shared universe too called Nod's Ridge. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's, <laughs> I'm, I'm marking down notes here, but yeah, no, like, uh, Tabitha is definitely probably going to be part of, uh, some future just King things. <laughs> what if we read all of the Tabitha King shared universe novels and do one episode on them? <laughs> Just like the like a five hour extra. Maybe that should be our like charity live stream for this. Is like we slowly but surely read every Tabitha King novel and talk about yeah. it. Uh, or no, we're gonna we'll do our live tour. Yes, that's what we'll do on our tours. Mm-hmm. We'll just do Tabitha King novels. Anyway, sorry not to get you sidetracked. Uh, um, two hours into this. <laughs> uh, so the 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 next sort of section of questions, um, these are shorter. Um, we'll see if we can move through them with a bit brisker pace. But uh, this is, you know, about recommendations. Uh, so Sam writes in, y'all read any contemporary horror, anything you really like, even outside of the contemporary. Do you have any horror fiction recommendations, any work you wish was more widely read? And sort of a second question, similar lines, Gabby writes in, Hey y'all, I hadn't read any horror books, but on your recommendations, I read The Shining and loved it. Now I want to broaden my horizons. Do you have any other recommendations outside of King's Au Revoir? Hill House is the only other book on my list. Love the shows and super excited for the Homestuck cast. Thanks. Uh, speaking of the Homestuck cast, we are very close to it. But we might be there by the time this comes out. This yeah. is going to come out like quite a while after we record it. So yeah. who, who knows? But uh, yeah, I got two quick recommendations uh, in the kind of horror zone. 
Um, the, the first one is I just finished reading literally every Hellboy and BPRD comic book by Mike Mignola and John Arcudi and all these people, big group of people who do it. I think if you like Stephen Kingy kind of stuff and you like kind of like uh, lighter horror in that way, and you can and you like comic books, uh, some people just don't like comic books. Um, those are those are good, and I think that they kind of pay off in a big shared universe way. That's really cool. Uh, I think it sticks the landing better than the Dark Tower does. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Um, so that's my kind of first really quick recommendation. If you like, if you don't, but if you do not like comic books and you don't want to go that way, um, uh, the last horror book I read that I really, really liked is Michael Weehunt's Greener Pastures. Um, it, uh, Greener Pasture, it's like a short story collection. Michael Weehunt is a, uh, I think like a rural Southern writer. Mm-hmm. Right? I think he's he in lives Georgia. in a rural area and he's is he's a Georgian guy maybe maybe uh I should have him um you know on the show I mean I literally when I so I found out about him through you and I wondered if you knew each other because of this uh, no 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 we don't I've like I've like email I've messaged him to be like hey I like your book but no I didn't and maybe I didn't know that he was in Georgia maybe I didn't know that anyway point being no well no relation uh, I don't know him in any way um but it's uh like the horror is not quite Stephen Kingy but uh, We Hunt does a lot of cool stuff with perspective that I really like. Um, he kind of uh, can, he is very good, like Stephen King, of like jumping jumping from character to character and kind of giving you a lot of different angles on a horrifying situation. And then he's got other stuff that's just like absolutely out there horror that I really like. Uh, I think it's in Greener Pastures. He's got one story that's just about like a uh a waterfall of blood in the mm-hmm. like in in appalachia mm-hmm. right that just like turns people into vampires oh, it's such a good story <laughs> it is it's a great story it's like completely out there right like there's no and it kind of has this like apocalyptic tone to it at the end so i think i think he's a good writer um you know uh, obviously content warnings uh in the way that we would content warning anything on just king things it's horror it deals on a lot of kind of gross and disgusting and uh deeply difficult elements um but uh, definitely worth your time uh and you know kind of a smaller independent writer who i think is doing really great work so greener pastures by michael we hunt would be my kind of like deep cut Strong recommendation. Mm-hmm. I think you would really like it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I was also going to recommend Michael Weehunt because Greener Pastures is is a really wonderful collection. Uh, um, I can't even remember the title of it, but uh, just to, you know, sort of gesture at some of the even more weird and interesting stuff he gets up to. There is a story in that collection that is a uh, what if uh, we've talked about epistolary uh, formats in, in, in fiction <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, on this podcast, right? Uh, stories, fiction that is written as a, a series of letters or diary entries or things like that. Um, what if you hybridized that literary mode with the techniques of found footage horror? Which might sound very confusing to you because it is confusing conceptually, but how it ends up working on the page is just like some of the coolest shit I've read in a horror story in, you know, the past 10 years. Um, yeah, that's one of my, oh, let me, it's right here beside me. I just have to stand up and get it. I want to tell people the title because yeah. I agree. That's one, it's one of the best horror stories I've ever yes. read. Uh, October Film Haunt Under the House. Yes. Oh, it is. So, yeah, that's one that gets a uh, real, real high marks from me. Um, but the whole collection is just top to bottom. Great, in my opinion. 
Um, so just some other sort of, if you're, if you're looking for kind of contemporary horror authors who are doing uh, work that I think is is cool and, and interesting, uh, other people that I would recommend are, are uh, like uh, Laird Barron, um, who's got a couple of novels out, a couple of short story collections. Uh, and I, I enjoy his short, I mean, I read his novels and I think they're good. Uh, I'm a, I'm a big short story collection guy though. So I really highly recommend kind of his short story collections. He's also a good writer to read if you want to, if you enjoy as I do, because I'm a weirdo, if you enjoy reading someone who uh, occasionally pauses and thinks about like, what do I want to do as a writer? What are things that I'm not doing that I want to try to do now, you know, vary the kind of voices that I'm doing or the kind of perspectives that I'm taking in and then like making new stories around that i think um baron does that uh, consistently and uh has some great imagery uh uh stephen graham jones uh uh has a bunch of stuff um but i think if you really like stephen king you'll like his short story collection uh after the people lights have gone off and there is in fact a story in that collection about stephen king uh about like reading a or leading a reading group um that is reading stephen king uh short stories and the other thing that's really cool about uh, uh graham jones uh is uh if you can imagine stephen king that sort of lean or not even leans but sort of starts more on kind of like the affect character emotion side and then pushes into the horror uh that's that's how jones kind of feels to me in that um i feel more for stephen graham jones characters than i ever feel for most stephen king characters to be honest um Mm. so that's good uh uh and then um uh, Carmen Maria Machado, uh, who has a short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties. Um, and I think she, she's, I think, done very well. She, she's had really good crossover success, kind of like uh, a literary horror. Um, and just does, again, very uh, strange and weird and unsettling things like her story that's uh, entirely just episode summaries of uh, Law and Order Special Victims Unit episodes that don't exist. Um and they get like progressively weirder uh, as, as things go on. Um, so there's that. And uh, if we're talking about older stuff, I've brought this guy up before. But if you want to if you want to pick up someone uh, uh, a little lesser known, although I've seen more and more people on Twitter actually boosting this guy, uh, Michael McDowell uh, in his novel, The Elementals, which is like one of the coolest, weirdest haunted house novels, like Southern Gothic haunted house novels that I've ever read. And also uh, he wrote a, a much longer novel that he published in installments. And in fact, it is specifically him publishing this novel in installments over the course of several years. And then it all being kind of like bound together in a single novel. It directly inspires King to write the green mile in this way. Uh, Hmm. But McDowell's novel uh, in this mode is called Blackwater. And it is a sort of very, it's like over a thousand pages long, but it's like just this sort of rambling uh, Southern Gothic, uh, supernatural history of a family in a town in Alabama, like a sort of wealthy logging family in a town in Alabama, kind of like a soap opera uh, where monsters uh, occasionally show up and and weird stuff happens. And it's one of my favorite novels of all time, right? It's one of those novels that I, if you're a writer, sometimes you think to yourself, I wish I had written that. (laughs) Like if I could, if I could just 
take any book in the world and be the person who wrote it instead. It like Blackwater is is one of those books for me. Um, so I I love McDowell and I highly recommend him if you are interested in searching out something a, a little older um, that uh, didn't necessarily get as much play in its time as I think maybe it should have. Uh, yeah, and the, the last thing that that because uh, I'm just realizing that I only write or I only read horror short stories. Uh, you might want to check out Maureen McHugh's work, uh, particularly her short story collection After the Apocalypse. I, she's not really a horror writer. I wouldn't say that like oh this is horror work necessarily, but it's science fiction work that tends toward uh, the limits of the human. I would say um, uh, the the short story that's really cool in there is called The Kingdom of the Blind, and, it, and the, the shtick is that there's a, uh, a, a artificial intelligence emerges, uh, quite is, becomes emergent behavior in a power grid system. What do you do with the fact that you have discovered life that is sentient here? Mm. Um, and so, so she writes this kind of like a lot of kind of quandary stories like that that kind of tend to the horrific. Um, yeah, I know another cool person worth checking out that's called after the apocalypse by maureen McHugh. so hopefully that's enough recommendations from people uh for four people uh that'll uh get you through it for a year uh the next sort of cluster of questions uh are all very you know discontinuous uh because they are just they're the one-offs the what-ifs the favorites the goofs so uh robin writes in hey king fingers long time first time i have a very simple question king is notorious for being terrible at writing endings what do you think is the best ending he's written among all his books or just the ones you've read so far thanks keep up the good work I think uh, I think we should only answer of of the ones that we've read so far. I think so too. I don't think we should speculatively. Okay, uh, Salem's Lot, The Shining, or Cujo. But yeah, The Shining is also great yeah. too. I think The Shining. Yeah, yeah they're all good. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, so this is something interesting, right? King is notorious the, from the question. King is notorious for being terrible at writing endings. There are more good endings that we've read so far than bad endings. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, the only really truly terrible one, like truly terrible one so far, is the stand. Yeah, yeah, no, that's the I, when I say truly terrible, I was thinking of like the Running Man, just in terms of sort of like implications. But even then, like I think like the Running Man in, in its way, like the problems we had with the ending of the Running Man is that we wanted more than that book was ever going to give. <laughs> Uh, whereas the stand 100% just like works up to a fever pitch and then kind of falls to pieces. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm thinking here terrible as far as like uh, insufficient to the thing in front yeah. of it, you know, and uh, for better or for worse, the running man's ending is, is uh, kind of like, I mean, literally it hits a brick wall, mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, but at least is sufficient to the thing in front mm -hmm. of it, you know, um, and Cujo, of course, you know. Amazing. Um, and Salem Slot, amazing. Mm -hmm. And Carrie, really good. Um, you know, not too many of them have been bad. Uh, we will eventually get there. But I, I think that uh, I think that's something that's interesting, much like the Cujo story that we went through in that episode, where uh, King has a reputation for something that is maybe not exactly earned all the time. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to find out that more of his books have good endings than bad endings. Mm -hmm. I just I think the problem with King is that when the ending is bad, it's real bad. <laughs> yeah, it's notably yeah. bad, <laughs> where that's not always the case for everything, right? Uh, um, Oz writes, if you were attacked by a rabid dog, what would you do? Based on your extensive Stephen King research, what would he do if attacked by a rabid dog? 
I would simply not be attacked by a rabid dog. Mm-hmm. I would uh, turn on my rabid dog repelling sonar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my rabid dog spray <laughs> on my utility belt. I don't know what I would do. It would be harrowing. It would be terrible. Yeah. Um, it would it would be hor it would be, you know, truly horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean I'd I'd run away from the dog, uh, is what I would do. I don't know. Uh what do you think Steve would do? I think he'd get attacked by a dog. I think he'd be murdered by a dog. Steve, Stephen King in the moment uh, in the moments before he's attacked by a rabid dog. I should write a novel about this. Wait. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think that would. Ha- yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, at this age, I'm giving giving odds to the dog on that one. Um, but uh, I don't know. I hope no one gets attacked by a dog. This is this is my hope going forward from this episode that no one ever gets attacked by a dog yeah. again because it's awful. Yeah. What a bad no, thing. It should not happen to people. It's unfortunate that it does. Uh, mm-hmm. Brendan writes in, why, and I cannot emphasize this strongly enough, does Steve need, quote unquote, it done for him? My response here, Brendan, is that uh, the answer to this question and more resides in the bonus episodes, specifically our bonus episode on The Shining miniseries, uh, which is where our famous uh, sign off phrase that everyone knows and loves comes from. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Check it out. I'm not going to give you any more than that. Uh, Nope. Uh, James writes, what King book or adaptation are you least looking forward to covering for the podcast? Uh, and then a secondary question you mentioned in the episode, the running man, that it was indeed sheer luck that Stephen King became Stephen King in that dark universe. Uh, who took his place? Dean Koontz, Peter Straub, John Saul. Um, so what do you think of these questions? Well, that second question is pretty interesting because I, those people were Stephen King quality uh or you know kind of size of name uh up to a point the difference between like stephen king and dean Koontz is is really not like size of name on the title or anything like that it's that stephen king somehow i mean well with the help of drugs for a while but was able to do two novels a year for a decade and uh no one else could match that pace you know, in some ways, he is just like, if you crowd the market enough, no one else can stay alive. You know, he, Stephen King's approach to the literary marketplace, you know, and we've already learned this through the the, the whole like Bachman, Bachman scenario. It's kind of the uh, algae bloom model of, of uh, writing. Whereas if you can just cover all the surface area, you're going to win out <laughs> because you're out competing your, your uh, uh, you know, all the fish or whatever. So um, I, I don't know. You know, I don't... Um, you know, uh, historical contingency is hard to do it. It's probably Tabitha King. You know, we've talked about it a little bit, but instead of Stephen King, I think it's not someone you know the name of. It's like someone who we've never heard of or, or who's a minor character in the world of, of writing. Um, I don't have a thing I think I'm least looking forward to covering. Do you? Yeah, so in terms of alternate histories, uh, you know, I basically agree with with your thoughts there, Cameron. Um, and then what book or adaptation am I least looking forward to covering? Um, weirdly enough, the ones that I feel like I'm least looking forward to are ones that are like post my exit, like things mm-hmm. that just conceptually I didn't think i don't think sound interesting uh so like eleven twenty two sixty three, right um which i think i think you're gonna like it 
I, I may, right? Like I may end up liking it. This is not me, you know, being being prejudiced here, mm-hmm. but just like straight up like I remember when that book was announced uh, and it was described and I was just like, I could not care less about <laughs> this story. Like I just well, it's kind of, I mean, it's like his, uh, it's really kind of the real Last Dark Tower novel mm. in some ways. Because, as we've established, the the main through line in Stephen King's work so far is really the concern about the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> yeah. And, like, how the world changed because of that. And so I remember reading it at the time and being like, oh, shit, like, this is, a, like, he's been thinking about this. And he's obviously been thinking about this novel for a very long time. But, um yeah, okay. So so that you got you got any other ones you're not not looking forward to? Um Oh, you know what? I'm not looking forward to having to watch the Hulu series for that. Though. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not zero interest in mm-hmm. that. Yeah, no. I I don't think there's any other any others that I'm really dreading. Um and of all the ones that I have read that were kind of, you know, moving forward to, there are certainly ones that I don't really like, but I'm not dreading them. So yeah, I don't really have any anything like that either. I've got um I don't want to read The Regulators because I think that is not not only like a really bad Stephen King novel, but uh one of the worst novels I've ever read in my life. Just period. Mm-hmm. Like flat. I think I think it's terrible. And so I'm not looking forward to it. And it has some of like Stephen King's worst go for the gross yeah. out kind of impulses in it. I think I've talked about this before on the show and I'm not particularly looking forward to the Tommy knockers TV show because oh, I actually yeah. put that in at some point, like when we were starting this podcast, I bought it and I like put it in and watched the first 10 minutes and it is rough going wow. like really rough going. Yeah. Um, and so I'm not looking forward to that, but n- neither of those are like, Oh, I don't know how I'll be able to do it, which is how I would really, you know, categorize like truly not wanting to do mm-hmm. it. Um, I'm just not looking forward to it. Uh, Phil writes in with some hard hitting direct questions, one for me and one for you. Since I'm reading, I'll start with mm-hmm. yours, Cameron. How much work do you think it would take to get your King impression on the same level as your excellent Lynch impression? Uh, the, the, the gap there is infinite. <laughs> I was going to say you, you would have to really work on, uh, like speaking up and through your nose to get to where King's voice is. I think I can't do it. Yeah. I think that like my jaw just doesn't do that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just can't do it. You know, there's nothing more only if I were had, if I were from Florida, then I would truly be as far away from Maine as I could get. <laughs> but, but, uh, but you know, I'm a little bit closer than that. But no, I just, I'm not, I'm, I'm probably going to keep doing it because it's funny. Uh, but uh, it's not going to be as good as my David Lynch impression, which I, which I've spent a huge amount of time just talking like David Lynch because mm-hmm. it's funny to me because <laughs> uh, he's yelling constantly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, uh, Phil writes in yeah. uh, uh, to me, uh, Willem Dafoe voice, as something of a horror writer yourself, what has the impact been on your own work uh, of such deep dives into the Shockmeister's Ouvoir? Uh This is an interesting question, I think, because uh, I have not published anything since we started doing the podcast so there's nothing that i can point to sort of concretely to be like well you'll notice like here's a stephen king influence in something that you can uh, read from me um or i guess technically i published but it's just been like academic work which is not where my stephen king influences are showing up um (laughs) i will say that stephen king uh at the end of the day is the writer who 
probably by dint of reading all of him that I could at a very impressionable age, has kind of the most indelible influence on my prose style when I'm really going at it. And in fact, uh, years ago when I was much working much harder at being kind of like a fiction writer and I was sending things out, you know, kind of weekly and keeping track of my rejections and everything, um, when I had people read uh stuff and comment on it and you know they would say this is a good thing uh they would be like you write like stephen king um which is you know cool in the sense that like yeah stephen king is successful uh but not necessarily uh you know i don't want to just be someone who who writes like stephen king especially when i'm what 21 years old or something and, and really into this idea of forging my own literary identity uh luckily the internet comes along and i make uh twine games and extremely weird stories written through yelp reviews that help me break the stephen king curse uh sylvan writes in my question is, what aspect of Steve would you focus on if you were going to teach a course on him? Uh, and with his breadth of work, both in volume and style, it seems to me that there is no shortage of themes or topics. Thank you for being the highlight of my month. Keep doing it for Steve. Uh, I would not. Mm-hmm. I, I just I like I I know that's against the spirit of the question, yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know this is me uh, committing the fatal sin of uh, not yes ending this question. But I just I wouldn't do it. I I would not dedicate. Uh, I I think it's good podcast content, um, but I think that you would have to read so much Steve per class period to get enough to talk about and to like really be worth everyone's time, that it would be very difficult to teach Stephen King. Mm -hmm. um, because sometimes, you know, I, I think for us, when we record an hour and a half or two hour episode, obviously we leave things on the cutting room table or cutting room floor, you know, as far as like things that, that are in our notes or whatever, or that we noted, but that we didn't, um, th that we didn't get to. That happens every episode. But I think if you gave me three hours or maybe like four hours, I think I could get you everything I wanted to say about a Stephen King novel, uh, you know, a 600-page novel. And um, so that would mean that, <laughs> that just means, you know, so that's two class periods or three class periods. That's one week of a class. So that means having to read a Stephen King novel a week in a class. And I just don't think that that would be like a fun thing to do. Um, I, you know, I just don't think there is enough for me, a density of ideas that would make it rewarding enough to read Stephen King across a whole class. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I, I think it would be, you know, the other way of answering this question is I think it would be worthwhile teaching a Stephen King novel. And if I were going to do that, I'd probably teach the shining, mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, of the things that we've read right now. Um, if I were teaching like a creative writing class, I'd probably teach maybe Cujo, uh, or maybe Salem's Lot, one of those. Um, but I don't think, I think that everything that I want to do when I'm teaching, Steve in some ways is antithetical to that, uh, the way that he writes and the way that he kind of does does his his thing. It just wouldn't work out the way that, that you want, I think, for a single author class. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, my answer is sort of the same in that I don't think I would, teach a, you know, single author Stephen King class for very similar reasons. Uh, and in sort of my particular formation of this would be like uh, there, the man has written so much um, and I can sort of probably, you know, 
pare that down to my favorites, but I am not sure if there is something there that I can structure a course around uh, for, for sort of similar reasons, I think, to, to, that you were alluding to. So, you know, I, I, I think that there are Stephen King books that I would teach. I don't know if I would do a single author course if I were forced at gunpoint to do so. Um, it would probably be a kind of uh, deeply uh, cultural studies class about like the way that publishing markets changed uh, in, in the 70s, 80s and 90s and sort of tracking Stephen King's career across those changes and how uh, basically, you know, the, what I've mentioned before, like the brand identity of the author and how that becomes a, a kind of force for King in a way that it really hadn't for for uh, writers prior to him. Um, and that would be what I would be focusing on. <laughs> Yeah, I think Stephen King. I I think that would be the the only way that it would be valuable would be to think of him like political economy mm -hmm. wise, um, or like kind of from a cultural studies angle, uh, because then you know it's interesting to read the Green Mile mm -hmm. and read it piece by piece and to know that there was kind of time in between them and things like that. But yeah, absolutely. Jupiter Doomsday writes in. Congrats on the first year anniversary. I have a semi-silly request. Uh, if you were to create a scale of how Boomer-esque Stephen King gets from OK to OK Boomer, uh, compiled of just his books uh, as the metric scale, what would it look like? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> well, uh, what is his most OK Boomer thing i guess is the i was question. gonna say here's like i think here's how we approach this uh is we just like what is what is his most okay book that's one delimiting mm -hmm. factor and then what mm -hmm. is his most okay boomer book and i guess let's go with okay boomer mm -hmm. because uh i think that's a stronger affect well eleven twenty two sixty three is literally about the kennedy assassination and going back in time to stop it so that's a pretty big okay boomer precisely my response <laughs> <Kind of thing>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't i don't know how how more boomer you get maybe from a buick eight is right after that yeah <laughs> about classic cars and how cool mm -hmm. they are titled after a um, bob dylan song well i didn't even know that Great. yeah um and then his his most okay i don't know I'm trying to think what is like what is like the most middle of the road like I have almost no opinion on this Stephen King book mm -hmm. that's not about like childhood and nostalgia and like how good it was right. in the 1960s um maybe needful things yeah yep that yes because that is like you know? uh, the Stephen King novel that does kind of all the Stephen King stuff but sort of in the most like all right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sure. It's like kind of a bunch of short stories too. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it very much is like, oh, uh, here's this whole little world. And like, you know, some people do curse cocaine. Isn't that weird? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, you know, yeah. I think that's probably his most just like, whatever. Yeah. All right. Cool. Mm -hmm. Um, Michael, who is not me, uh, writes in 
And thank you for your work on this podcast. I've always been a 50-50 on King, and it helps when someone else brings the energy to a deeper reading of the books and movies. My question, have you talked about reading slumps and how you're preparing for those periods where books stop being interesting at all? I guess you have the movies to break the pace up a bit, but cracking a book like Under the Dome is daunting uh, when you just don't want to read anymore. Love the show and thanks. Other than the regulators, I don't think there's a, a Stephen King book where I'm like, oh, I just can't do it. Uh, you know, maybe the difference between us and and maybe the general population is that I had to do comprehensive exams. Yeah, like I've I have seen the absolute bottom of hell mm-hmm. of reading books you don't want to read and books that are, that what you will own, that you need to know pretty well. Mm-hmm. For one day of your life and you never have to think about them again but you do need to know them really mm-hmm. well and so uh yeah i just uh like none of these are that bad you know i've just been you know i fight club myself you know i've seen how bad it gets <laughs> and under the dome that sounds awesome to read i'm not having to read like a uh, film history from 1975 that's sweet awesome under the dome it's got aliens in it hell yeah 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 uh no i i think i i think sort of um what Michael is sort of getting at is this idea of, is there a point where you're ever going to get tired of reading Stephen King and you're just not going to want to continue doing it? And if that's the case, then what I'm really not wanting to do is this podcast, uh, which is another <laughs> sort of issue entirely, because I, I was thinking about the exact same thing that you just mentioned, which is that I did PhD uh, qualifying exams. And that like that was literally a summer where I woke up in the morning and I read a book and then I read another book. I, I had to read at least, you know, two books a day to kind of make it through my schedule. Um, yeah. And they were not th- like, these were not things I was reading for fun. I was not reading all of this Stephen Greenblatt because I, in fact, I have been, I think on this podcast, maybe I've talked about how much I sort of disagree with some of Stephen Greenblatt's scholarly kind of approaches, uh, but I had to read them because that's what I had to do to, you know, uh, qualify and, and start the dissertation and everything. So am I maybe not looking forward to reading uh, the JFK time travel book in, in kind of a, a general abstract sense? Yeah, sure. But it's it's nowhere near having to read like a book of theory and then uh, try to puzzle that out in my head and then ruminate on how inadequate I am as a thinker to the chosen field and, and all, all that stuff. That's not necessarily going to happen here. So, yeah, yeah, it's just like I've just had to do like way worse stuff in my life than like sit and uh, have people like here's the other thing about right. People pay to listen to the bonus episodes and people support us on Patreon. And that's partially why we do the show and people listen to it. Right. Like if no one listened to the show and we made no money at it then maybe I would have a harder time doing it. But people do listen to the show. We have all these great people, just like you, Michael, for for uh, giving... Well, not you, I was going to say, but, that's, that's uh, kind of a weird address. Yeah, yeah not, not you, but this Michael, <laughs> who is asking the question, right? Like, we have all kinds of great people who like the show and talk about it and enjoy it and think that it's worthwhile. And, like, so if, like, cracking one of these books open and, like, reading it, and, and like, there have already been times where, where I was like... I guess I gotta read the dead zone. All right. I gotta like stop doing whatever I'm doing today that I'm enjoying. And I had to like go sit and read a Stephen King book all day. Mm-hmm. Um, and like getting through, you know, get, just getting through some of these has been, uh, you know, something I've had to like make time in my life for. And that's not particularly pleasant, but people really like it. Like people are listening to it and you enjoy it and you want to talk to us about it. 
and uh, people are paying for the bonus odes. And so it's like, uh, I can sit I can sit through anything for money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I've said this before, right? I'll read anything for money, anything at all. If you give me money, I'll read it and talk about it. That's the easiest thing in the world for me to do. And so I'm happy to do that. And and much like you were saying, Michael, I've just like, I've, I've read the worst things in the world for no money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, that was way worse. So um, yeah, yeah, happy to do it. So th- there's never going to be a time, I don't think, and I think, fortunately, I don't think Stephen King's ever really written, like, five truly bad books in a row. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always, he might write a couple that are a little not, you know, not great. But he's pretty good about getting us back to a good level. I think if I had to spend a full year reading just, like, terrible novels, it probably would begin to weigh on me. But Stephen King is such that that's not the case. So mm-hmm. that's pretty good. So the next question, uh, Will writes... How has Stephen King's hit-to-stinker ratio changed over time? Although the show has covered only a small portion of King's novels, it seems to have already hit most of the big ones, and Pet Cemetery and It are just around the corner. Why does it seem like the the iconic King novels are much fewer and far between after the mid-80s? And so I think we actually already mm. answered part of this. Um, the hit to stinker ratio maybe really hasn't changed. We've already said that King is actually remarkably consistent. Uh, I think what the other part of this question zeroes in on is the fact that uh, not even if Stephen King has written, you know, a pretty good novel, uh, the ones that really took off and captured the cultural imagination uh, do seem to really level off. Uh, after the 80s and we've seen attempts of the the big post 80s project of the dark tower series we've seen attempts to try to get that to catch on in a mainstream way and they've all fizzled out um so uh mm-hmm. i think that's sort of really what's going on here uh cameron why do you think uh that post 80s uh king maybe really doesn't take off like he did before i think just book culture changed I I think that has more to do with it than anything else, than any other kind of um, singular. I don't think it has much to do with King. I think that, like you're saying, I think the rate is roughly the same as it's always been of like bad to middling to really high level novels. Um, I think that just, you know, it's harder to he he's still able to make a lot of money doing the writing, but I think it's harder to push an entire publishing industry around this type of book. Um, the nineties are not really explained by that too much, but also he was still doing really, really well in the nineties and generating, um, a lot of work that, uh, that sold well, but didn't resonate. So I, you know, I don't know. I don't have a good explanation for like 1990 to like, I don't know, the end of the dark tower in 2004. I don't have a good explanation for that, but I, you know, Stephen King, where he lived as far as like writing is concerned is largely the population that has been consumed by the young adult boom, like the the YA mm-hmm. boom of the early 2000s. I think that that is the the readers who were part of that uh, are, were Stephen King's bread and butter, and now they've moved into kind of a different sector of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's okay. And maybe the 90s part of the explanation there is the kind of rise of the techno thriller, mm-hmm. um, kind of eclipsing the horror novel broadly across the board. Yeah, Jurassic Park um, kind of changes some things, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, John Grisham, mm-hmm. you know, kind of in the legal thriller kind of world there, too. So I think that, that I think I think you have to flip the question in some ways, mm-hmm. right? It's not why did these things not rise to the level of his earlier works? It's 
if Stephen King remained r- roughly the same, what changed around him to make make that not be the case? And I think what changed around him is that genre taste and market demographics changed. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact of of walking through Stephen King. Um, we have established on the show anecdotally, but I think this also holds up market wise, that a big part of Stephen King's market were adult women. Mm-hmm. And it took a long time for the publishing industry to realize that adult women were a market that you could sell more than uh, romance and horror novels to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think once they figured that out, then that really changed um, who who was reading what kind of mm-hmm. novel. Yeah. And I, I think yeah. the other thing just sort of in thinking about genre is that Stephen King comes about and is sort of like the propulsive force behind a certain uh mode or cohort or fad of horror through the 70s and the 80s that I think by the 90s becomes kind of a joke uh right like oh a Mm -hmm. Stephen King not like this is when you start getting the jokes about oh the next Stephen King novel is about a haunted credenza or whatever uh and of course there's going to be a really bad movie based on it because this is also when we start getting like the lawnmower man adaptation right um so there's that kind of thing happening. And then I think uh, horror, like 90s horror, like that 90s is when we get scream uh, in, in cinema. And so like popular horror takes this kind of ironic or or meta uh stance in in some ways and then i think on the ground you're seeing the rise of people like neil gaiman um which -hmm. is to say like uh horror shifts for a good 10 to 15 years i think into being very close to now what we call dark fantasy uh where things are not so much horrific as they are just sort of gothic um and yeah or Urban fantasy broadly mm-hmm. too kind of emerges at that right, time. right, right. The Laurel K. Hamilton uh, Anita Blake Vampire Hunter series, which I was reading at the same time that I was reading all this Stephen King stuff. So I was reading my vampire romances. Oh. Yeah, and Buffy too, I guess, in the kind of the pop yeah. culture, um, you know, kind of move. So yeah, it just feels like all these things are like pieces of Stephen King of what was Stephen King's domain are kind of being eaten by other genres. And so, you know, I, I don't think that the reason you don't know about these books from the 90s has anything to do with the books. I think it has everything to do with the kind of pop culture machine and where Stephen King lives in that machine. Mm-hmm. Mitch writes in, love the show. It's getting me to go back and read some Stephen King that I haven't. Question is, do you have any signed books from authors that you really treasure? I want to get a Stephen King book signed one day, but who knows when that will happen. We do it for Steve. No, I don't. Yeah, I it's weird. I don't have any books that I have. Well, I do have books that I have had writers inscribed to me personally, but this is I've never done the thing where there's like a I've never gone to like a Stephen King reading and then had him sign something. Um, I just I have had like I've been at the the books that I have that are inscribed to me are like authors that I happen to have like known personally and then had them sign it because I think they're my friends or like, you know, at least I I had a good seminar with them or something. Um, And then I do have other inscribed books, but they're not inscribed to me. And these are just like, I I sort of collect uh, uh, pulp and horror novels, sort of obscure ones. And I have like, for instance, a signed Manly Wade Wellman uh, novel. Uh, But that's, you know, I treasure that because it was a gift to me uh, from my wife 
Um, and she, you know, got that for me because she knew she knew I liked that author and she like tracked down this particular, you know, rare signed edition of it. Um, and I do treasure that. Uh, but it's it's interesting, like what what this question made me realize is that I have never really like picked an author that I liked and been like, will you sign this book for me? That's never happened. So I don't know what to make of that because I definitely have signed books. But uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, it's not a thing for, I, you know, I, uh, I'm i not like a book. I have a lot of books in my home, but I would not say that I am like a book person, meaning that like the physical object doesn't mean too much to me. Um, although, but like you, Michael, I do have like a small collection of rare books. Those are mostly theory books, um, you know, out of, out of book, uh, out of print theory books. I have a few um, fiction pieces that way, but like, you know, uh, I, I'm a big fan up until, you know, obviously the past year when that's been very difficult to do, but big fan of like going to uh, thrift stores and things like that and checking out the books that are there and like, you know, what's going on with it. And so I've quite a lot of times in my life have found, you know, like really cool first editions at library sales or things like that. But I tend to get rid of those um, and, you know, sell them for some nominal profit to a bookstore or whatever. Um, I recently got a first edition paperback for night shift i think i shared that with you mm -hmm. uh michael um and uh, i and, they, and i paid uh 50 cents for it or a dollar for it i think at, at a library sale and i'm pretty sure i'm just going to sit on that until we have like a fun reason to like offer it as a prize for mm -hmm. something and then i'll like offer it as a prize you know so yeah i'm not really into the like that the the signed copy you know much like for you michael it seems like the, the that signed book you're talking about it matters more to you as a a sentimental object between you and your wife than it does, mm -hmm. um, you know, because it has the signature on it. And, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't, I just don't, you know, I, I, if a book is not available in some other form, uh, I'm, I'm into that because I like to be able to physically look at a book, but beyond that, I don't really care. Jordo writes, if Stephen King had one of those branded meals at McDonald's a la BTS or that basketball person, what would the meal be? I mean, what are Stephen King's flavors? Yeah, I don't know. It's got to be something. It's got to be like, right, let me do it before I name it. Mm -hmm. You know, let's describe what it, it would be. I think it would be like a cheeseburger with just ketchup mm -hmm. on it and a chocolate milkshake. Yes. Uh, fries or chicken nuggets? I'm thinking fries. I I don't think it would have either, weirdly enough. Really? I, think it, I don't know if it would have, like, the additional thing. It might. No, it would probably have fries. It would probably be. It certainly, I, don't, it, I don't think Stephen King would ever eat a nugget. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, like, maybe the human being would, but the figure of Stephen King, right? The kind of uh, imaginary titan of Stephen King. Mm -hmm. He would never eat a nugget in his life. It, it would just be, yeah, like fries, a simple burger of some kind, chocolate milkshake. Mm -hmm. For a minute, I was thinking, like, maybe uh, the fries are served on the burger but i actually uh i don't think that that's how that would go i think uh, steve would be very into the traditional presentation but i think there yes. would be some sort of hint that you could put the fries like on the burger if you wanted to it, de it really depends on like how drunk you are right yes. like like have you are you eating mcdonald's after a wild night out and you just need something to go in your body put those fries right on that burger like mm -hmm. it, it might come it might say it on the, like the box because the box would definitely be like uh, 
uh, checkered tablecloth colored, like nothing uh-huh. like anything that would be from McDonald's. And it would be like, you know, it would say on it, feel free to do this however you want. Feel free to freestyle it if you yeah. want. Oh, oh, you would get a medium Coke with it, but the uh, the cup would be, it would say Nazala on it. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. His, uh, his famous non-Coke brand that comes up later in the Dark Tower series. Yep. Uh, but I don't know what it would be called. I know the, they all have like a fun name. and uh, Uncle Stevie's McMeal. <laughs> I think he would be really insulted by being called Uncle Stevie. <laughs> I, <laughs> you, know, you know, I think he really would. I think he would like not. I think it would make him angry. Okay. Okay. Luckily, okay. he'll never know. Don't yeah. tell him, everybody. But no, I think don't. Uncle Stevie would be particular. There's something uh patronizing about the name stevie (laughs) or -hmm. like uh you know minimizing about that like you would call a small child stevie it's what his grandfather called him of course i know because there's a there's a line in dance macabre where he talks about he says a thing that his grandfather used to say to he's like the thing my grandpa used to say to me was like that's your problem stevie you open your mouth and all your guts fall out (laughs) lord like his grandfather trying to tell him that he talks too much yeah shut the hell up steve (laughs) stevie (laughs) Um, but so I don't know. That's, that's our sketch of an answer, Jordo. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Slash you're Uh, welcome. (laughs) Uh, so Eric J writes in, um, with a couple of questions, uh, and they're all kind of diverse. Uh, one, if for some reason you could not make just King things and had to do the same podcast on a different author instead, who would you, who would be your second choice? Not including Andrew Hussey, because I know, I know you're all about, uh, reading through everything Andrew Hussey has done in addition to Homestuck Cameron. So just Who's to, Andrew Hussey, uh, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I know who Andrew Hussey is, <laughs> but wouldn't that be good? Yes. Uh, the uh he, we've talked about this and i think we've talked about some of the bonus odes a few times about like alternate universes um mm-hmm. you know when we talk about clive barker mm-hmm. uh but the problem with Clive barker is that half of his series are just dead they never finished and so you know i don't know how fulfilling that would be for yeah. anybody take that dark tower fans you know one i think we've talked about or maybe i mentioned ursula Le Guin would be mm-hmm. one that were that were like it could sustain a podcast Mm-hmm. Um, as a person, and what I was thinking about the other day, which which I, I'm I'm seriously kind of pitching and thinking about, although I am also seriously pitching Le Guin. But you know, eventually this podcast will be over, and if we don't hate each other, then <laughs> then we'll have to think of a different show after this. And Anne Rice, I think, uh, occupies a very similar kind of uh, imaginary space to Stephen King, and that might be interesting to do. Yeah, I was thinking about this as well. Uh, because in some ways Stephen King is uniquely suited for the two of us specifically doing this show, because I think you and I align on Stephen King and Rice. Uh, I stopped reading after Queen of the Damned because I just felt like, all right, I got this down. Like, I don't need to know any more about these vampires and witches and stuff. I feel like <laughs> I, I've got it uh, uh, sort of on lock. Um, so I would actually probably be interested in uh, the Anne Rice project. The Anne Rice Project. (laughs) Uh, uh, Just to see kind of where those things did go after I stopped reading. Um, And then also wild places, I promise you. I I have heard. Um, (laughs) I'll just give you this uh, this information, like no context needed. And this is this is so outrageous to say that it's not even spoilers for someone who is listening. I'm not I didn't read this book, but my 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 cousin who read a lot of Anne Rice and would often report back to me what was going on, 
I'm 99% sure that in one of the novels, Lestat becomes the Pope. Wow. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <Huh>. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's what's going on. Yeah, that sounds so that sounds a lot more uh weird and interesting uh than what i've already mentioned which is like after Anne rice that's when i forked off and i started reading the more straightforward urban fantasy so laurel k hamilton and her anita blake series uh which <laughs> it was a very fun experience because here i am like this teen boy um reading uh these novels that are about you know a, a woman who is a vampire hunter in st louis in kind of this urban fantasy setting and she has all of these complex relationships with the various werewolf and vampire clans and and so on and so forth and they're just you know they're they're sort of pulpy fun thriller things with a hint of romance because of course her tensions with the vampires and werewolves are all kind of romantic um and then reading these as they progressively become uh, more and more about the erotic elements, um, like just sort of straightforwardly. That was an experience of teenage Michael of like at cer- at a certain point, I'm just like, I, I don't really like object to this, but it's this is just, I, I just I'm not interested in reading erotica, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I stopped that that series. But that's only uh, that I'd be reading these Anne Rice novels, <laughs> right? <laughs> um. But uh, yeah, so yeah, the Anne Rice project. Mm-hmm. Uh, question Make two: the vampires kiss. <laughs> uh, King has branched out, and this is still Eric J. Um, King has branched out into screenwriting and even directing films to arguably mixed 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 success. Windspear Hills, mixed mm-hmm. success. There you go. How do you think he would do with some other storytelling mediums? What would a Stephen King video game look like? I think Stephen King worked on a video game, right? He worked on. He, I don't. I think worked on would be a stretch. There was his a, name is on a video game. <laughs> there was a software uh, application suite called F13 that came out in the late '90s, early 2000s. That was like, <laughs> here's your Stephen King screensaver. Here are some Stephen King desktop backgrounds. Here's a Stephen King icon set for Windows 98. That sort of thing. Oh, that's amazing. I uh, that's very funny. Maybe we can check that out later. Um, I don't. uh, Well, so let's see. Stephen King has directed one movie and it's amazing. Mm -hmm. He's so batting a thousand on that one. Um, Most of his scripts are pretty good. Mm -hmm. Um, He's made a comic book. So, you know, that I guess he could. We'll find out next episode if he's good at that or not. Um, I don't know. I think he could probably do, I think, I think Stephen King, the way that he writes and works, I think that he could do a passable job at nearly everything. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think the medium would hurt him. Has he done a radio play or anything like that? I, I mean, I know there are radio adaptations of things. I don't know if he's explicitly written for the radio though. Hmm. We'll have to figure that out. And I I guess, oh, uh, the only thing that I would add would be that like, you know, I think Steve's, uh, biggest, uh, weakness is a screenplay writer. Uh, has been, and I've said this before, is the uh, uh, 
his tendency to have things exposited through dialogue when when you're working in film, you could do that visually or some, something along those lines, right? He, he carries forward certain novelistic traits into other writing that sometimes don't, uh, you know, fly as well. Uh, and weirdly enough, I think that video games would accommodate this uh, because you could just have some sort of lore codex where he could write whatever he wanted uh, in addition to the, the main uh, written matter that you have to deal with. Uh, so that's that's sort of my thought is that if we had a, a a Stephen King video game that took advantage of the fact that you could compartmentalize some of his writing uh, might have some interesting effects. Yeah, I think you'd do a great job of writing like a, a scary thing. That's just a wiki page. Mm-hmm. Steve could do that. But yeah, I don't know. This is another Eric J question. Do you think you will cover any of the Marvel comics adapting the Dark Tower and other King stories? Uh, well, at some point we are going to run out of like weird bumper stuff to do during mm-hmm. Dark Tower episodes. Um, I hadn't thought about it, but this this. Uh, so I read this question and initially just went, no, <laughs> next, <laughs> next question. Uh, but I do think actually maybe it would be interesting because if I remember correctly, the Dark Tower comic books start with um, Wizard and Glass. Oh uh, um, yeah, yeah. The Dark Tower, yeah. The Marvel com, the, the Marvel Dark Tower series is kind of like uh, the Adventures of Young Roland. Yeah, and so it might be worth doing like when we read Wizard and Glass to like read the comic as the bonus episode there. That might be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I mean, I've re- I've dipped in and out of those. I read like part of the one for the stand, a few issues of that. I I just I don't think they're very good to be frank. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they're very interesting comic books, and I don't think they're I don't think they do enough with the adaptation to make it interesting to me um you know i when i'm reading a comic book i'm looking for like some interesting and like engaging stuff that comic books specifically do and i think for the most part the dark tower comics are only interested in like realistically adapting those books and i can just read the books instead so Mm -hmm. i was not impressed with them when i read them well, well executed. This is not an insult to these comic books. I think they are they are succeeding at what they're. I don't want this to come off and be like, oh, this comic book. Uh, they're just not what I'm looking for in a comic book. I think they are well executed and well thought out, but mm-hmm. not for me. Yeah. Well, relatedly, Eric asks also, uh, you said that you don't think there's a big enough difference between the two releases of The Gunslinger to warrant a separate episode for the 2003 version, uh, but you have decided uh, but you have decided to cover both versions of The Stand. Would you like to explain the difference between what changes in The Gunslinger and what changes in The Stand? Uh, the answer to this is very simple. Um, the revised version of The Stand adds another third to that novel. Yeah, like a third of that novel got cut and then got put in. And the impact that that has on the scope of the novel on just just the, on literally on the sheer level of content, uh, it makes it something completely different uh, in a way that I think really does warrant kind of a, a two episode approach. Um, and uh, you can say what you like on this, Cameron, but I think uh the gunslinger revisions are really, and we say this in, in the episode that's uh, already been released. It's a George Lucas special edition thing where he goes through and he, uh, you know, takes every vague reference to like people who can use magic in that setting. And he changes it so that they are specifically referred to as the term for like a tribe of magic uh, users that he comes up with in like the fourth or fifth book, right? It's that sort of thing. 
Yeah, uh, it's just, uh, I believe, I can't remember if it's two pages or four pages, but it is, it, uh, the difference between the Gunslinger original and the Adapted Gunslinger is four pages or less. That's just it. I, it's, it's enough that we can cover the differences in, <laughs> in one episode and kind of talk about it. And it's basically just bringing the, uh, not changing very much plot. I don't think any actual plot has changed there. It is just bringing the terms and references and uh, kind of world in line with the rest of the novel. So like the Tahin are added and um, like brand names. that 19. Ni- yeah, 19. The number 19 shows up. So it's just not, it is not significant enough to dedicate. We would have nothing to say on the second episode. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have a lot to say on the, the adapted stand. Um, because, you know, obviously, or maybe not obvious to everyone else, but one of the big reactions that we got to the stand, uh, original version, abridged, basically, that justified, for me at least, after the fact, our decision to put it into two episodes, is that everyone was like, no, you're wrong. You're wrong about the stand, because blah happened. And then I get to very uh, smugly, I mean, I didn't say it smugly, but now in retrospect, I was like, ha ha. Uh, I get to be like, no, that didn't happen in that book. Like, that's not in that version of The Stand. And then someone would say, oh, but this character is really well-developed. I can't believe you said that. And I would have to say, but that's not in that book mm-hmm. at all. Um, you know, a lot of people, I, I, I've i made a couple comments about the Trash Can Man because that The Stand um, uh, new miniseries was adapted, or TV show, was happening. And Trash Can Man, there was a lot of kind of discussion about him. And uh, in particularly, there was uh, someone who wrote an article that was like, oh, the, the comic did or, or the, this new TV show does the trash man, uh, trash can man um, well, but not uh, sufficient, maybe um, based on the performance. And so I you know, made some comments about that, that like if you read the book, trash can man from the, and I said this on the episode, we both said this on the episode from from jump. There's no way to save trash can man if you maintain that character. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's no way of like augmenting that it's in the root of the character, all of these like very difficult and, um, uh, exploitative elements to use some of the language we were using two hours ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and some people are like, no way the trash can, man, he's got all this development. And I wanted to be like, yeah, but that is not, you know, that gets re-edited back into the stand. Um, and when you cut him down to the bone of like what that character is, he's, he's a stereotype. He's a set of stereotypes. And I think that you can add a lot. What's going to be interesting is, and the reason we would go back to do a new episode is that for us to investigate, does adding all of that back in about him fundamentally change that character? Mm-hmm. My gut instinct says no, but I'm open to that. That justifies a second episode. Changing some brand names in the gunslinger does not justify that episode to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I think it was it was indicative of what a good decision it was to split those episodes when we started talking about the stand. And I realized that every time someone was talking to us, uh, either of us on Twitter or whatever about the stand, they're like, oh, I can't wait until you talk about blah. And everything that everyone remembers about that book is in the complete non-cut edition and not the original printing. And I think that is one fascinating just in general right uh but then two uh sort of speaks to how well the complete and uncut edition has obliterated the first printing from uh the cultural memory <laughs> mm-hmm. uh and just on this point uh i, I didn't read it in the main episode because i forgot uh but here i just want to read some of what uh king himself says about the edits he made to the revisions in the gunslinger uh just because 
this is the type of revising that he did in addition to kind of like bringing everything into continuity and, and uh, uh, explicating lore and things like that. Um, here are the other sort of guiding principles he had. This is from the essay that introduces the revised version of the gunslinger. Before I close, I should say a word about the younger man who dared to write this book. That young man had been exposed to far too many writing seminars and had grown far too used to the ideas those seminars promulgate, that one is writing for other people rather than oneself, that language is more important than story, that ambiguity is to be preferred over clarity and simplicity, which are usually signs of a thick and literal mind. As a result, I was not surprised to find a high degree of pretension in Roland's debut appearance, not to mention what seemed like thousands of unnecessary adverbs. I removed as much of this hollow blather as I could, and do not regret a single cut made in that regard. In other places, invariably those where I'd been seduced into forgetting the writing seminar ideas by some particularly entrancing piece of story, I was able to let the writing almost entirely alone, save for the usual bits of revision any writer needs to do. As I have pointed out in another context, only God gets it right the first time. Hmm. So, right, like this is this is the kind of revision that King is doing is that it's literally him, like his opinions on what a good prose style is have changed. And so he's just going through and doing like line edits. Yeah. And uh, obviously there's all this other stuff uh, about this bizarre thing about writing seminars encouraging you to be too artistic basically um that speaks to a, a lot of stuff we've talked about in terms of king and his kind of uh populism slash anti-intellectualism yeah steve yeah that's it we did it yeah that's it that wraps it up for this uh the the, the question sewer special uh we we worked through that inbox but uh the the pipes are the pipes are clear now uh and more little boats can come on down uh and uh delight us with your queries your corrections your questions uh that is the question sewer at gmail.com we'll probably at some point in the future do another big q a episode and uh as i said this depending on how things work out this might be become kind of a brief recurring segment on uh, uh, regular episodes. Um, anything you want to mention before we really tie this off, Cameron? You can go to twitter.com slash range touch in order to find out everything that we're up to and check out our other shows. And of course, this is always supported by Patreon, patreon.com slash ranged touch in order to support the show. Um, if you enjoyed listening to this and you thought, hey, I would love to hear double the amount and you're not already subscribed over there on the Patreon, you can get access to the Just King Things bonus odes uh, where we talk about um, the film adaptations of Stephen King, but also I guess I'm open to other stuff like comic books. We just haven't really talked about it yet. Um, we just did the Mangler, right? Mm -hmm. That would be right before this. And then the next one's going to be Creep Show, the fan favorite Creep Show. I've just received my collector's edition Blu-ray in the mail that has uh, a billion, uh, just an unthinkable number, a dreadful number, in fact, of special features on it, including a making of and a couple commentary tracks, actually. So, of course, I will check all that out and be ready to report back what I learned to you on that. So, um, you know, if you haven't listened to any of the bonus episodes, you know, there's one of them currently, the one that we did with Kirk Hamilton, is in the mainline feed already. If you go back a little bit, 
Um, and uh, we just did a bonus episode with Simone de Rochefort on The Running Man, and that will go into the main feed at some point in the next year. But uh, yeah, it's, they're, they're really exciting and fun. And if you're enjoying this, uh, you know, the main stuff, then uh, and you're not supporting us currently, it's only $5 a month. And uh, it really helps move the bar. I mean, uh, the amount of work that we do for this show and all the Range Touch shows is pretty significant and large. And, um, you know, buying us a cup of coffee a month actually really does help out in a significant and serious way to make time for this in our life. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please rate us five stars. If you're listening to us on some other platform that has a rating system, please give us a thumbs up. And the last thing is if you like this show, I would like for you to go on some social media platform, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Twitch, one of the other ones, a Discord that's not our own Discord, um, somewhere, and then tell people about it, please. We don't do any advertising. We don't do anything like that. We only expand by word of mouth, and uh, people do such a great job. I really want to thank everybody, right, especially if you've listened to three hours of this podcast. I want to thank everyone who listens to the show and continually every month. Uh, pushes it. I see people tagging the Range Touch account in. You don't have to do that if you don't want to, but I see that happen. I see people recommending the show, and I see people saying they're listening to it, and we really legitimately appreciate that, and we want you to keep doing that. Um, you know, just do it once a month when the episode comes out. It's a little thing that you can do for us, and you might feel like you're shouting into the void, but I promise that if 10 people see the tweet, then one person will check it out, and one person checking it out and getting involved and listening to Just King Things really does do a significant thing for us here at the show. So um, it might feel like a little bitty thing, but if everyone does a little bitty thing, then that makes a big thing, and we can really see that when it happens on our end. So uh, that's my plea at the end of this to uh, help us get the word out um, because we're, uh, uh, we are a nicely sized show and we would like to continue expanding so mm-hmm. more people can listen to my opinions about Stephen King. You know, that's the end game. Yeah. That's the end goal. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of, uh, uh, you know, putting out the good word uh, and having opinions, I want to actually take this time because I just realized because of the way recording schedules have worked out, this is like the only t- time I can plug this where I can where it will come out close in theory to the uh, episode in which I'm guesting uh, abnormal mapping uh, another podcast network uh, with M and Jackson that's a uh, head falls off and M under EM underscore being on Twitter. Uh, if you think that we do a lot of podcasts, uh, boy, do they do a lot of podcasts. Uh, Abnormal Mapping is uh, one that's free and sort of it's it's gaming culture podcast. Uh, I encourage you to listen to that. Um, but I was lucky enough to come on as a guest on their show, The Great Gundam Project, which is literally what if just King Things was about the anime series Gundam instead of Stephen King novels. Um, like they're they're they have this amazing undertaking of trying to watch uh, all of the the Gundam series in release order. And I came on uh, an episode that I think is probably up by now uh, when this is posting to talk with uh, M. Jackson and Austin Walker, who's hanging uh, around for for a couple seasons of that show now uh, to talk about Turn a Gundam. That is a Patreon show for abnormal mapping, but uh, it's one dollar and they do really great work. That's uh uh, you know, in kind of the anime uh, video game space, uh, I guess that's really if you wanted to do a sort of like distinction between ranged touch and abnormal mapping, uh, 
the, the the thing that makes us range touch different is that we don't really touch the anime but i'm pulling all the little bricks out of that wall and that wall is called homestuck and when that's done then that's when the anime comes in and i'm gonna get uh cameron to uh i don't know watch all of pokemon with me or something i think i killed him i'm dead yeah, <laughs> I wanted to be the the very best, like no one ever was, and, but then I couldn't be, so rip to me. Uh, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, twitter.com slash abnormal mapping. Check that out. Um, it was a good conversation. Um, and to reiterate what Cameron has said, if you're already here and you're supporting us, thank you so much. Uh, and uh, thank you for any sort of boosting or, or passing this along that you are going to do in the future. Uh, until next time, we've already got a question about it, but Cameron, uh, why are we doing it? Uh, well, we're doing it for the world. That's the first thing, but, uh, you can't do it for the, I mean, this is really kind of a thing, right? If you do something for the world, by definition, you've also got to do it for Steve. 